Hey, if you're here for the Frank Shore interview and this is the first time you've listened to the Let's Run.com Track Talk podcast, we're glad to have you. We hope you come back. Every week, we treat track and field like an elite sport, not just a fitness activity. We break down the hottest news. We have hot takes, discussions. It's lots of fun. Once a week for free or twice a week if you want to be a supporters club member. Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Was Tim Hutchings calling the men's 5,000 meters in Brussels on Friday, where, in case you were living under a rock, Grant Fisher broke his fourth American record of 2022. We're going to discuss that and a lot more from a wild Brussels Diamond League that saw Arian Knighton and Kiera McGinn win their first Diamond Leagues. Plus, we might have a new star in the women's steeplechase. We'll talk about that as well. We'll also briefly talk about the Diamond League final. Which begins Wednesday in Zurich, though there's a few things that we'd still like to know about this before the meet kicks off. We'll get to that. Plus, we saw some super fast times on a muggy day at the US 20K Championships in New Haven, where Connor Mance and Kira D'Amato won the titles. All that. Plus, at the end of the episode, we have a very special interview with Frank Shorter to celebrate the 50th anniversary of his Olympic marathon victory in Munich. That anniversary is on Saturday. We recorded a show with him Tuesday night, so stay tuned to the end. You do not want to miss that. This is Jonathan Galt. I am joined by my co-hosts and the co-founders of Let's Run.com, Robin and Weldon Johnson. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Good to be here, John. Good to be here. I personally am very excited about this Frank Shorter thing. He's sort of like the mystery man, hero, Star, you've never met. You've never met Frank Shorter. I'm surprised by this, Weldon. You're a Yale cross-country alum. You run probably the most prominent running website in the United States. Frank Shorter is one of the most famous runners this country's ever produced. And somehow you've never crossed paths with him? I've never. I mean, it's, it's like meeting one of your stars. Without Frank Shorter, I'm pretty sure there's no let's run. When you're at Yale and they're like, hey, Frank Shorter went here. He used to run here. You know, he'd run these trails. I have no idea if it's true, but he was sort of this mystical figure. So I wonder if I've ever been in the same place to him. I must have at some point, but I think I might have been afraid to meet him or something. So personally, I'm, I'm very excited about this interview. Just want to say thank you. I mean, he, he helped kick off the huge running boom and he's seen it all, you know, and our interest areas overlap. He was big and he helped, he established U S anti-doping. I mean, he ran it at first. So it's kind of interesting, but also I feel like Frank, you know, maybe going to expos and that sort of stuff all the time. Like I guess he was doing stuff, but not as much, you know, in 2010, that sort of stuff when let's run really was taking off, but we've been around for 20 years. Well, I'm glad Walden admitted he was afraid to talk to him 
because that's I still am afraid to talk to him. I'm going to be sitting out the interview later today when you guys do it. When the big, big names come on it, I realize I don't love myself. I don't have enough self-confidence. I skipped Malcolm Gladwell. I'm going to skip Frank as well. Kind of kidding, but got to give a shout-out to my four-year-old son. It's his third day of school. Son, if you snuck that phone in there and you're listening to Daddy, I love you. He was crying when I dropped him off today. Wait a second. Does your son have a phone, Robert? That was the joke, John, about the phone, but he did have a tough day at drop-off today. I just gave a shout-out. No phones for him yet. Okay, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's a new era. He's Gen. He's not even Gen Z. Whatever will be after Gen Z? Do you start at A again? But, but right, you keep getting phones earlier and earlier. Who knows? It's in the student handbook for pre-K that no electronic devices are allowed. So they have it very specifically in there. I guess some parents might give them a phone, but it's going to be a cool interview, I'm sure, with Frank. I'm a little bit disappointed. I don't think Walden's going to have the guts to ask the two questions I want to see asked. I won't even say them right now. They're on the message board. One was going to be, do you know who Walton Johnson is? But that just makes it too much about us. And then two was about a pre-race ritual. That was the big rumor of the Yale Cross Country team 25 years ago. That's all I'm going to say. But it should be cool. But, John, you started off with the Tim Hutchings call of Grant Fisher's American record. Pretty good call, but that wasn't the best part about the broadcast. I think Walden has some audio he'd like to share with you, with the with the world. Most definitely. Everyone on Let's Run loved this. Real interested mistakes. Lots of message board activity coming into this meeting in Brussels about whether he could get this uh, this U.S. record held by Bernard Lagat since what 2011. Kajelts are losing ground. There it is, ladies and gentlemen, with about, I think, 800, 900 meters to go. Shout out to the message boards. Uh, what's the guy's name? Chris Dennis, John? Yeah. I'm not going to sue. I mean, everyone knows when he says message board chatter that he's talking about let's run. But for the uninformed, I mean, do, you, do we want to help a whole new generation? You should say uh, on the let's run.com forums because we might inspire all the new generation of track and field fans. They got to know there's a place you can actually talk about pro track and field, but cool mention there. And in case you've been under a rock, Grant Fisher crushed the American record 1246. We broke it all down on the supporters club show. We have a second podcast every week, just for subscribers. Go to let's run.com slash subscribe. It's a great deal. You get all the content bonus podcast, 20% 20% savings right now on running shoes. So you can save 30 bucks right now when you sign up. You sign up for a year, you get the super soft t-shirt of your choice. These are the best running shirts out there. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. But even though we talked about Grant there, I think we got to keep talking about Grant a little bit here because this is a run, run that did it on so many levels. Well, what I'd like to bring up is a third audio clip because I think most of us expected the American record to go down. Once we knew the rabbiting was going to be hot, we pretty much expected it, right, John? I mean, what was the poll results on Let's Run? What did Let's Run Nation think in that pre-race poll? But it was an incredible run, but it was more exciting to see him battle for the win. Um, 
it was just it's really cool like if you win the race and get the american record then get beat um and amazing stat by a letsrun.com visitor forgot his name john i've got actually i've got it in this google doc his name was Mark Wenneker. Robert, I want to take some credit for this. Mark did point out that the last time someone broke the American record in the men's 5,000 and won the race was Matt Centrowitz in 1982. But I did do the legwork and go through all pre all the American records between now and then, get the results, that sort of thing. So certainly an assist to Mark. But yeah, it was definitely an interesting stat. 40 years ago was the last time an American man broke this record and won the race. So it was fun to see him competing for the win up there, going for it, being aggressive. When people were falling off, he was immediately on it from fourth to third, from third to second, never got to first. It did look like he was an engine maxed out in that last lap, whereas the crop, the winner, looked like he was totally relaxed, so, so smooth. But afterwards, you know, we did the show, and then we did the recaps. And then later I was looking for some audio clips, and – I guess this meet was on some U.S. broadcast. I listened to Peacock, which is the international broadcast, but somewhere Kara Goucher and Paul Swangard were doing the commentating. And with about 500 meters to go, this is what I heard on their broadcast. I heard that, and maybe it's just me, you know. Sometimes I'm a broadcast journalist myself. I always think that I could do it better. It's not just track and field announcers. It's also NFL announcers, football, soccer, whatever. I always think, oh, I could announce better than that. And when we get a new announcer, I love them. I love Kara at first. thought she was a fresh voice, and now I'm just like, yeah. But in this case, my criticism was, I was like, wait a minute. And we're kind of as fans exciting, always going for the win. But how is this race, like she says he needs to do it in a real race, not a time trial. How is this not a time trial? This is the thing that was rabbited by professionals for 3,000 meters. Then they had Kajelcha and a couple other guys keep pushing the pace. This was, and they had wave light. It was basically 61 seconds the entire race. I would, someone go back and look at the split lap by lap. This was a time trial. And then at the end, it was a two person battle for the win. The last time I checked, that's pretty much exactly what happened when they got the 10,000 meter American record. Grant Fisher basically had a rabbit race, but they had there, they had to do some of the work themselves till the last lap. Then he and Mo and med raced it out for the win. The only difference is I guess in the Bowerman time trials, two guys are battling it out for the win at the end. Whereas, well, it's the same thing Two here. Like, I don't understand why this race is given more credit for being a real race, or I guess more less credit is given to these Bowerman Track Club races than the Diamond League. I know it's a bigger stage and there's prize money at stake, but I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute. This is my complaint about the Diamond League to begin with. It's always a time trial. You guys understand what I'm saying? I get what you're saying, and I think it's a fair complaint. I would say the Bowerman time trials, Bowerman basically has 
cop blanche over most of those things. They usually get to dictate the field and the exact splits. And if it's coming down to a race at the end, it's between two Bauman guys. Whereas this one, Fisher's not the one requesting the pace. He's got people from outside his team to race. It is a bit different, but yeah, he essentially just sat on Jacob Crop for the entire mile, last mile, which is smart racing, but in practice, yeah, it, it was pretty similar to a, a time trial type race. Uh, I see the point. Who would have thought Jerry's time trials <laughs> mimic Diamond League? But there's, there's a couple big differences, Robert. This is the Diamond League. It means something. There's a packed stadium of I don't know how many thousands of people. They're cheering him on. You're overseas. You're not just competing against teammates. I mean, come on, Robert. Like, let's not pretend this wasn't a thing of beauty. It was a race that meant something. It's on the biggest stage. It's on TV. Internationally, it's something people care about more than outside of a few distant fans in the United States. Well, I agree, but I, I meant it another way. Like we should give more credit to the Bowerman Track Club. Like he he had to race that out. I mean, here the win means more. You don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but you know, amazing run. My other complaint was they said it's going to be exciting, and then she sounded like she was asleep on the last lap. Like the international guys got so pumped, and I was so pumped. But great run, amazing season, and the week that was, we have a discussion up of like. We hope you're appreciating what you're seeing here from Grant Fisher because I know while he hasn't meddled, this is up there with greatest distance season by an American male runner in the professional era. Now, John, I don't know if you had a chance to edit it. I know you've, I think you've read it. I, I basically said there's really only two other seasons that would be considered better than this. Um, I'm discounting Bernard Lagat's 2007 season when he won World 1500 and 5000 gold. I'm considering that the best American middle distance season because he only ran the 5000, I think, like two or three times, never broke 1330, was mainly a 1500-meter guy at that point. But in terms of long-distance seasons, what's better than this Grant Fisher season? Galen Robb, 2012. He runs 1258 American, uh, his 1258 PB in the 5000, gets the Olympic silver in the 10,000, and then 2011, Bernard Lagat, when he got silver in the 5,000 and ran 12.53. I think those two seasons, Grant would trade this season for either one of those seasons because they, they got the hardware. But we're getting pretty close even without the hardware. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think you have to give Lagat and Rupp, I think, the edge because of those silver medals. But... And there were a couple other seasons I think you overlooked here, Robert. Bernard Lagarde's 2010. In that season, he won the world indoor title in the 3,000 meters. He set the American record in the 3,000 of 729 flat. He won the London Diamond League. He won the Continental Cup in the 3,000 and the 5,000. And he also set the American record indoors at 5,000 and outdoors at 5,000. So, and he won the U.S title as well so i think that season is pretty comparable especially when you consider you won world indoors and are we just forget are we ignoring the steeplechase here evan jager had a few years there where he was one of the best three steeplechases in the world he medaled in 2016 and 2017 2015 he was third in the diamond league final he ran eight flat which is 
he's way faster than any Americans ever were in the steeple. And then 2017, he was third at Worlds, won Monaco Diamond League in 801, and third at the Diamond League final. So I think you can throw a couple of those Jager seasons up there too. He's not doing it across multiple events, so maybe you give Fisher the edge in that department. But yes, this is an all-time great season by Grant. Fisher, and yeah, just the lack of medals, you're going to be like, oh, it's kind of a bummer, but everything else he's done is so spectacular and we're not going to we're probably not going to see another season like this for quite some time lack of medals and also lack of actually beating anyone that matters right what he's beaten everyone he's beaten i was doing this preview for the 5000 he's beaten all of the best guys in the world at some point or another it's just that except for ingebrigtsen but Everyone else in the Diamond League final on Wednesday, he Grant Fisher has beaten them at some point or another. He just hasn't actually won a, a big international race. Wasn't this his first European race of the year? What else, what am I missing? No, he won. Well, he ran Worlds, so he got to race a bunch of these guys, and he ran Monaco, where he finished third. Oh, that's right. And Brussels. That's right. I mean, it's also the one thing I was also thinking about. Because Grant is running the Diamond League final tomorrow, Wednesday. It's on this, it's on a track, but it's not a circular track. It's around this green in Zurich. And I feel like that's not a Jerry Schumacher group type race. Do you guys think Grant is racing more to get a little more experience? Because everything is more of a time trial. I think there is a difference, but like he fell at Worlds with 100 to go. And maybe he's not used to taking on some of the Europeans, some of the African guys. Get Just get a little more racing experience. Do you guys think this is the plan all along? Or because you haven't seen this from Grant in the past, or just maybe the schedule worked out? Because I think that was the sort of one thing you kind of wondered. Like, hey, if he had a little more racing experience, could he have pulled off the medal in the 5K? No, I think this is just what you do if you're a professional track athlete and the world championships end in the middle of July. What, you're just going to stop your season? Like, he's in the shape of his life. He's He knows he's got a bunch of races to go out. He can go to Europe, do a full European season, which he hasn't really gotten a chance to do, run a bunch of fast times, make some money, and I've been seeing his Instagram. He's going to a bunch of soccer games, too. He grants a soccer fan. His brother plays at Stanford. So why wouldn't you do that? You're just going to shut down your season and stay home? Like, he's doing what a professional track and field athlete should do when Worlds ends this early. Sidney uh, McLaughlin, uh, Ajay Wilson. I know they're not, they're, they're not doing what a pro athlete should do. Pro athletes should continue their season until the end of the season. A thing, Mo. Um, I mean, our sport has got some issues. It's like, I don't know. I think we can learn from the Live Golf Tour. Context matters. Don't come on, man. No, no. No. Like the negative. If you put a bunch of people together competing in something no one cares about, it's going to take a long time for anyone to give a shit about that thing. But if the best golfers never competed, I don't think it's a good way to to sell any product. So, man, our sport's got issues. But I'm, I'm glad. Let's just say, Grant, thank you. I'm glad you're competing. John, what soccer games is he going to? He was at a Spurs game. And I think he went to one. They they had a game at the Letzigrund, the stadium in Switzerland. I think it was Grasshoppers. So I'm waiting for him to show up at Brighton and Hove Albion, but maybe he won't go there until we go top of the table this weekend with a win against Bournemouth. So then he'll have to come to the Amex Stadium. 
One last thing about Grant before we move on. Someone on the message board was saying it's cr- it's crazy that he's run that fast and can't medal. And I responded, why is it crazy? Do you realize how many great guys there are in the world right now that also don't have medals? I don't know if you guys have seen this message board post, but if you haven't, guess how many guys in the, in the, in the world have run 1250 or faster in the last two years? So 2020, 2021, or 2022. So it's a little bit more than two years, potentially. I'll guess nine. I was going to say eight. The answer is 11. And it appears if my math is doing is correct, my counting, seven of them have medaled. Jacob Krupp, who won this race, Jacob Ingerbridsen, Mo Katir, although Katir's medal was in the, was it in the, which one was it in today, this year, John? It was in the 1500. Yeah, so he medaled in the 15, not the five. Mo Ahmed, Joshua Cheptegei, Jacob Caplimo, not all these guys have medaled in the five. This is five or 10 or 15. Samuel, Solomon Borrega. And then four of them have not medaled at the last, you know, Olympics last year, Wolves this year. Nicholas Camelli, who's run 1245. Brer Huar Agawe. Hegos Hiwat. He's medaled in the past, 2016, but he hasn't medaled since then. Um, and Grant Fisher. So, you know, there's only, normally for these five and 10 guys, six medals to go around a year. There's 11 guys. Normally the best guy is going to win it multiple years. So it's just super competitive. All right, a couple other things from Brussels. This was a terrific meet if you didn't get the chance to watch it. Lots of excitement. We had a big upset in the women's 1500 with Kara McGeehan of Ireland. 30 years old, runs 356 to win that race. We had Jake Whiteman stepping down. The 1500 meter world champion, he wins the 800 143 over Emmanuel Correa, the 800 meter world champion. That was fun to watch. Ari Knighton at the age of 18 got his first diamond league victory. And we had Jacqueline Chepkoech, the world junior champion last year in the steeplechase. She has improved a ton. She's gone from 927 now all the way down to 902 is what she ran to win in Brussels. And she is still only 19 years old. So we've got a big st- uh, big potential star in that event. I'm sorry, correction. She's only 18 years old. She turns 19 next month. So a lot of very exciting events. Is there anything that stands out to you looking at, you know, moving forward, guys? Any lost storylines you want to hit? Anything you want to expand on from that meet? Well, I, I thought the bigger story was who didn't win. Shelly Ann Fraser Price, Mondo didn't win. They, they're, they're undefeated on the year. So I think Mondo wants to have an Edwin Moses type win streak. He's got to start over again. So that was big. But, you know, I don't want to rehash these races. I want to rehash interesting concepts from these races. Let's go to McGeehan, the Irish woman, 30 years of age, never breaks four. You know, like if you look at her. Seasonal best, let's start in 2016. 401, but before that it was 406. So 2016, 401, then she runs um, 2017, she runs a 422 mile, which would be what, like 402. Then 404, then 4 flat point 15 in 2019. 
410 in the COVID year 2020, 402 last year, now 356. But four-second PR. But then I'm reading on Twitter and people are like, four-second PR, like where is this coming from? If you're not suspicious, you're not a student of the sport. And then other people are saying the opposite, like, look, a breakthrough can come at any point in time. It doesn't have to be early in your career. And we have seen a number of women get better the longer they go on. Sarah Hall comes to mind. And I just was interested by this. Like, it is weird that she just jumps a four-second PB. I mean, it's, not, it's the 1500. She races a lot. But I'm also like, okay, so the drugs thing, that doesn't make much sense to me. Like, do we think that she just got on drugs? Like, if she was going to get on drugs, wouldn't she have gotten on drugs for Worlds to get into 356 shape? Or wouldn't she have gotten into drugs for last year for the Olympics? Or is it she's just finally so fed up that, you know, on September 3rd, she, you know, week before or something, she's like, screw it. You know what? After 29 years of being clean, I'm going to dope now. Well, I don't think you... I'm no expert on doping, but I don't feel like you can just take it and then one week later it's going to have immediate effects. But I think it's it's a discussion to worth at least bringing up when someone who's 30 years old drops their PB by four seconds to run 356. But I think you've also got to be fair to the athlete. All these athletes work hard and you have to take the context into account, okay? You can say, yes, this is uncommon and it's something you might expect if someone started using, but you can also look at the facts here McGeehan wasn't healthy last year. She ran the Olympics, but she was battling a calf injury. She wasn't close to healthy. Then she was still injured with the calf in January this year. She changed coaches in April to Helen Clitheroe. That seems to have had a real effect on her this year because she's been running the best even before this race. If you were paying attention, she ran really well at the Commonwealth Games to get silver. And then very close to Laura Muir for most of that last lap, in Munich in the European Championship final. The time wasn't super fast because they didn't really get going until about 500 to go. But Muir ran 355 at Worlds. So if you're looking at that race, McGeehan gave her a good run. You would have to think McGeehan's in well under four minutes shape at that time. So there are, you can't just look at times and say, oh, this time to that time. No, that has to be explained by drugs. You can say, we should ask about it, but I think when you bring up that topic, you've also got to bring up the other factors to put her improvement in context. Yeah, I guess I, sh I shouldn't get mad when people are asking questions because normally I say, hey, we all should be asking questions. But I just thought some of these Twitter things were kind of pot shots at her. But you did a good job of putting it in context for us, John. Yeah, and I think a lot of these athletes, I would hope that if they are asked a question like this, there is a way to bring this up to say, hey, a four-second improvement at age 30 is very uncommon. Why do you think you're able to do this? And a lot of times I think the athletes will have their own... Ex this is why it's important to ask questions to athletes because then they can give you their explanation and say, well, hey, this is my life. This is how I've improved. And I did think her quote, I thought it was really interesting because she could tell how happy she was when she crossed the finish line. She was down on her knees taking a moment to herself. Then she embraced Laura Muir. She was fist pumping. It's her first Diamond League win. It's the first Diamond League win ever by an Irish athlete in any event. So they were all very happy. And her quote afterwards, she said, a time of 356, 63 is something that blows my mind. People say that in athletics and in life, every so often you have a day where you're completely in the zone. It doesn't happen when you want to, and you never know 
when it will happen. I can only say that this is how I felt today. I was in the zone and it felt like I was running on clouds. I just thought that was a pretty cool uh, expression of what it feels like to have the race of your life. John, I love that quote. I was trying to find it. Was it a quote of the day and let's run? I feel like it's off there. No, I couldn't find it. But you hear about flow and that sort of stuff. Sounds like she hit the nirvana of running. But the, the confidence she ran with, that's the other thing I want to give her credit for. I mean, maybe the Europeans really helped her because she battled, you know, Laura Mira, one of the best. But she ran like she had done this before, you know, like, oh, it's nothing for her to just be up there contending for a Diamond League win. And I think a lot of people who are used to getting just crushed in these races, I mean, that's what she does, right? She gets crushed in Diamond League races until this one, crushed. Be interesting to go look up like her best performances. This was a hot pace. She was right on it the whole way. I mean, it, it was a beautiful thing to watch. But, but I, she wasn't on it the whole way, though. She was about fifth with 500 to go. She was in the third group. There was a there was Welteji up front had broken away. Then there was a chase pack of two. And then she was in sort of the third group. She bridges the gap to the second group at the by the bell. They run down Welteji, and then she makes her move. But it's not like she was running right on the shoulder with the leader the whole time. She was. It was still pretty quick, but she was hanging back. She measured this one well as well. That is true. I forgot Welteji was so far ahead. But, yeah, I guess you're right. Disregard everything I said once again. Second podcast in a row. I've, retraction, retraction. Audio retraction. We need a sound for that. And this gets to my point, and I really hope that you guys ask Frank Short of this, because I think that there's this idea that you have a champion's mindset. And sometimes I do play it up. Like I'll, like when Coburn won the Worlds, I do think Fryrex, Fryrex was nobody. She comes around with about 250 meters to go, and she's going up for, to the lead. And there's like three or four women there, and I think Coburn's like, I never lose to Courtney. What's going on? So then, that, then instead of going for the medal... Coburn starts going for the win and wins it. But maybe it would have happened anyways because I always say, and I really hope you ask Frank Short of this, Weldon. We've heard this story about how the Harvard-Yale meet may not seem like a big deal to y'all, but for the Yale guys, it was a big deal. They hadn't won. It was 1968. Meets down to the 5K and the 4x4. All Frank's got to do is finish second and the third of the 5,000. He's in third at the bell, and he steps off the track. And a prominent Yale guy with a star of the team told me, he's like, I know he went on to win the gold medal, but it's hard for me to to." understand those two things in my head this is the champion of the world yet he quits on the team and hurts us and we, can, we don't win the meet because of this it's the same person and i think of you weldon you were fifth in the ivy league never higher than that yet when you got in shape and were training properly under john kellogg you're fourth in the usa and god bless you andrew levy this is a kid at cornell never did anything for three and a half years senior year put him in this meet with ncaa qualifiers beginning of the indoor season and he was running in the back and then in the middle, he's moving up, and he's about to pass his teammate. And I said, don't be afraid to pass your teammate. And then he passed his teammate, and then I said, and then it just took over. Racing instincts took over. It's natural to try to win the race, and he won the goddamn race. So I think that the – it's it, it, I don't know. I don't want to – when I watch these tennis matches, when I watch Serena, I don't want to say they don't have a competitive drive. They do, and they hate to lose some of them. Some of them are bigger than others. But I do think – if we're in shape, a lot of us have the champion mindset inside of us. Oh, I think that's the biggest thing. With fitness comes confidence. When you have the confidence that you can 
respond to any move. You're going to start doing it. You're going to take bigger risks in racing when you know your workouts have been going well and you've been doing stuff in practice that you, now it doesn't feel as hard on the track. Confidence and fitness and the willingness to make moves. You can't make these big moves without fitness to back it up because if you do it without fitness, you're just going to get your blown do doors blown off or embarrassed. So they, they go kind of hand in hand in this sport. I agree they go hand in hand, John, but what if like the fitness, the pain you're suffering, everyone's going through and you just got to know like, hey, I relax, I stay on this, I can do this. They're hurting just as bad as I am. I, I think somehow they're related. I mean, like, look at Robert, big podcast. He fizzles out, can't go on it, finds an excuse. It's just sort of the same thing. Well, Robert clearly doesn't have the champion's podcast mentality, but that's okay. He admits it. All right, speaking of people in the form of their wives in the 1500, came up with this over the weekend. Is anyone paying attention to what Yer Nagus has done? He's had one of the most interesting... 13, last 13 months of anyone. For international viewers, this kid was in college at Notre Dame. He makes the Olympic team, flies over to Tokyo, does not get to compete in the games because he's injured. Instead of going pro, you know, maybe Cole Hawker and Cooper Tier are getting bigger offers. He goes back to Notre Dame because, hey, if they're not paying me a ton, I want to win the NCAA cross country title with my teammates. Goes out hard at NCAs, blows up, finishes 158th. Team was not good at all. They're ninth. But hey, tracks his thing, right? Indoors starts out great. 354 mile win. Then he breaks Alistair Craig's 18-year-old NCA record in the 3,738. But then NCAs, he gets out kicked in the DMR and doesn't even score in the 3,000. He's ninth. Doesn't race again until May because of injury. Runs 339 at sound running. But hey, you can't run NCAs because of that meet. It doesn't have enough events. He's injured again, doesn't run ACC, so he doesn't get to go to NCAs. Puts all of his eggs in the U.S. basket. Looks pretty good because he runs 334 before USAs. Doesn't do anything in the final at USAs. So basically, in the big meets since the Olympic trials last year, he doesn't run the Olympics. He gets beat at in. He does terrible in NCAA uh, cross country. Gets beat at NCAA indoors. Doesn't make NCAA outdoors and does terrible in the final of NCAA out, uh, of USA outdoors. But what does he do? Does he go all the way misery? No, he does not. This guy's kept racing and has been insane. I think it was Sunday or Saturday in Padua, Italy. He runs a PB three thirty three twenty six, and. That's his sixth race of the year this year, under 355 in the mile, or 337 in the 1500. That's easily the most of anyone in the United States. Um, Cooper Tears run three races that fast. Cole Hawkers run four. Josh Thompson's run four. The big difference is Jared Goose has won all six of those races. This guy has not lost a race. I know he hasn't been in the Diamond League, but he's won two Diamond, two World Athletic Silver races, two World Athletics bronze races. And I just think this is a really amazing thing that he's been doing, and he needs some, needs some publicity for it. I wouldn't rank him number one in the U.S. I think Cooper Tier's U.S. win, his 350-mile indoors, his 351 at Prairie for six, deserves the number one ranking. 
But I'm definitely putting Yair Nagus as the number two ranked miler, which is hard to believe considering he didn't even run in CAs and was only 11th at USAs. What do you guys think? I think you're right. And we should mention he beat Cole Hawker in these last two races in Europe and well, as well in Lausanne and in Padua. Hawker was second in Padua, 335.18, but almost two full seconds behind Nagus. And it's weird because you look at this pattern of what he's done this year and you'd be like, oh, not a great championship performer. But that's not true because his last few years, he was exceptional in championships. He ran a terrific race to make the U.S. team at the Olympic trials last year. He was very clutch at NCAA championships on the track, always pulled it out on close races in the DMR and then at NCAAs in 2019 in the 1500. I, I think my theory for what happened is essentially, you know, he wasn't healthy early in this season. Comes back, he's still not 100% healthy at NCAAs. Oh, sorry, he was healthy when he ran 738, clearly. But after that, he doesn't run an individual event at ACC, so I think he's injured. Comes back, tries to run NCAAs, not totally fit. Comes back, he runs the 334 at the Portland Track Festival two weeks before USA's. And at that point, I think everyone thought, okay, no one else apart from Cooper is running that well in America. He's going to make the team. And then maybe he just didn't totally have his legs under him or he wasn't prepared for such a tactical race at USA's. What That final at USA's, I don't know, maybe it was just too soon in his comeback. Whatever it was, he wasn't ready for it. But since then, like you said, Robert, he's been spectacular. He took about a month away from racing and came back and has been in really good shape. So I think this bodes very well for his future. I think he deserves props for continuing to race this season. He's joining a great training group where he'll get to run with two of the top guys in the world, Mario Garcia-Romo and Ollie Hoare at the On Athletics Club. So I think it's if you're a Yard Goose fan, it's very exciting to to see what he's done post USA's. And I think, yeah, I think I'd have him t- number two behind Tia based on what he's done this year. Okay, John, I hate to be Debbie Downer here, but let's see, 353 for a mile, 334, 336, 333. What are those things? Those are times. No, they're B-level times, John. <laughs> well. Okay, Mar- Mario Garcia Romo. What's he run this year? Three thirty. Okay, Ali Hoare. What's he run this year? Three thirty. Say maybe even three twenty nine. Yeah, three thirty. They're both in his training group. So he w- is. Let's see here. Three thirty and three thirty three. I was an econ major, not math. I think that's a three second difference. He's three seconds slower than two guys who he'll be training with. Let's not get carried away about these times. It's great he's winning these races, but he's winning B, C level races in Europe. I mean, I applaud him for it. He, he, he couldn't get in a Diamond League right now. But like, US 1500 meter runner has been pretty weak this year. So I don't know. I'm glad he's doing well, but I want to see him get in a super fast one. I don't think there's going to be a chance for him, really. So maybe that, that'll mean Fifth Avenue mile. Because I mean, he, because, Padua, he won by a lot, right? He needs to get in a faster race. I mean, he's doing all he can do, which is like crushing these guys. But the 333 is the old 336. So I don't want to get too carried away with these times. The other thing is, I think with USA's, a 347 type race that's very slow, that's not his type of race. Or 
he gets 11th, which is a little bit disappointing. But if it's 347, you better be right on the pace when it goes. And I don't think he was. So I think he probably, everyone starts kicking. He's not maybe not 100% fitness, but I think that's what happened there. So I don't think it was like a lack of fitness because he obviously ran 334 right before the USA's. Yeah, well, he won NCAA since 2019. The winning time was 3:41. Now, Robert, he's only got one 800. He's got two 800 times on his Telestapaya. 155 from high school, 148 from 2019 at Notre Dame. So, using his 800 PR to judge, he's always been close in kicks, though. I don't think it was necess- I don't think it's, it was a bad style style for him. I think probably just didn't have as much as maybe it was a lack of experience. I'm, I'm not totally sure. I mean, Cooper we also worried, Oh, he's not in, he doesn't have any championship experience and he won the race. So yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I just think he's probably injured. He's got a lower leg injury. He's probably not really strong. Like switch gears. I just, he was fit. He's healthy. Now he's doing great. Walden wants him to run the diamond league. Guess what? Walden, he can't get in the diamond league. So, I mean, I, 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 there was someone on the message board said Grant Fisher, instead of running, what did he run in Lausanne, John? Grant Fisher? Yeah. Grant Fisher didn't run Lausanne. So he wanted to run the 1500 at Lausanne, but couldn't get in. So they're not, you know, they just, there's only so many spots, so many lanes. Yeah. And the argument wasn't Yared Nagoose is world class. He has not shown that yet. The argument was Yared Nagoose has had a good post. USA's and that he should be ranked number two in the US. And this has been a weak event for the US this year, but him running 333 and winning by two seconds, and also him when he won in Lucerne, he looked he dominated that field over the last hundred. Now he it's hard to say you dominate it when you only pull away at the end, but he had a lot left in the in the tank there. He ran 336 and that was terrible conditions. I wouldn't be surprised. If, yeah, you put him in a Diamond League where the winning time is 329 or 330 and he runs 331 high or 332. And then I don't think it, like, he's only 23. He's going to keep improving. We'll, it's yet to be determined whether he's going to be world class, but he's on the right trajectory. Yeah. Well, I think there's a ton of guys that can run 331 on a good day. I think he's one of them now. I know this was a nice PR. He's got the standard out of the way. He doesn't have to worry about it. There was one disappointing result for me in this Padua race. And sort of all season, I, I, we've been wondering about Hobbs Kessler. He runs a 334 last year. This year he's got a couple races at 336. But he gets in the Diamond League in the 1K. He's getting some racing experiences. He's just been a little bit off behind from where he was last year. But I kept thinking, like maybe at the end of the year, he can get in the right race. He can find a quick one. Can he get back into those 334s? And he was in this race. So winning time, 333. Admittedly, Cole Hawker, who's like six in the Olympics, is only 335. But Kessler tried to run up front with Nagus, I think, and then just packed it in. 13th place, 344. So it doesn't look like he's going to have reached his level of last year. But, you know, I, I don't think it's been a total disaster for him. He's gotten some experience in Europe. He sort of almost solidified those marks from last year. He just never quite popped the real big one. Yeah, it's fits and starts. He's 19. It's not always going to be a smooth trajectory to the top. He has run 146 for 800, which again, I thought was a sensational run for him. That 216,000 in Monaco, another impressive run. Season's best of 336, so 
yeah, you'd like that to be a little bit faster. And he didn't make the final at USA's. That, that's certainly a disappointment. But there are some reasons to opt- be optimistic about him. He's still only 19. You know, if, if I was to give this season a grade, I'd probably give it about a B for Hobbs Kessler. I think there's a thread, essentially. Who would you rather be, Hobbs or Hawker? I'm going to expand it. You can only say one name, maybe one sentence afterwards. Right now, you can take over the career of Hobbs Kessler, Cole Hawker, or Yerdin Goose. Should I give you guys Cooper Tier? Do you want Cooper Tier in there or not? Yeah, why not throw him in there as well. Or Cooper Tier. Who do you be? I'm taking Hawker. Sixth at the Olympics at age 20. Ferocious kick. That's a tough one. I muted myself when I asked John Kellogg. He's like, well, he's like, can I say Cole Hawker? We know at least know he's already made the Olympic file in six. I mean, that's pretty good. But moving forward, I mean, it's possible none of these guys ever make an Olympic final. And I, I feel like I like Tier because I know that he's training in Bowerman. He's going to have great training partners, a lot of opportunities, professional environment. If his talent, but is this, the question I have there is the talent level high enough? Like this guy was a minute behind the best in the world when he was a junior. I mean, he looks like he can compete with him now. He's he's definitely got the gumption to try to compete with them. Hawker, I don't know where he's going to be training. I do remember though that like Hawker's a better. I keep forgetting that he won Footlocker. He's got that endurance base to back up on. So it's weird. I'm like, oh, he couldn't go to Bowerman. It's too much mileage. But I'm like, his natural endurance might be the best. The goose is like almost a pure miler, fifteen three guy. But he's in the OEC. He's got some great training partners with Mario Garcia Romo and Ollie Hoare. Who's going to be the top guy in that group next year? That's exciting. And Kessler? Whew. Man. I got most down on Hawker in the short term, but... So, Robert, you've spoken for two and a half minutes and you still haven't given an actual answer to the question. Can we get one or not? John, I've had psychologists say that I'm not good at these types of questions. Like when there's no right answer, heads or tails, it's 50-50 literally. I'm going to debate it. I'm good at seeing all sides of an argument, unlike most people in our partisan divide. I guess I got to, like, who's going to finish? How do we define success? Who has the best Olympic oh my, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Please stop us. Okay, this is hard for me. We threw in tier. Hawker, uh, Hawker. Yeah, a year ago, this was easy. I'm taking Hawker. We throw in Tier. Uh, I think I take Tier now because I'm, I'm interested in the 5K angle as well, although Hawker could be great. I'm down on Hawker this year. It's like the immediacy of it. Nagus is last for me because, like, oh, do we have the potential? He's not the young guy. So Tier because of the 5K. I have to go to the pure miler types. Do I want to be Hobbs or Hawker? I'm going to go with Hawker because he's made the final. Like I, we get to bank that he's already made an Olympic final and been six, right? Like that counts or not? It's only future performances here on out. If I do that, maybe I take Hobbs. I don't know. All right. Well, a thrilling discussion. I'm sure this will come up on our podcast a few more times over the next few years because I expect all of these guys to be around for quite a while. Shall we move on to? The big racing action of the weekend. It was actually on Monday, Labor Day weekend in the United States. 
And that was the US 20K Championships in New Haven. It's pretty hot conditions for this race. 74 degrees. So that, that's not crazy hot. But the humidity was 94%. And Robert, I believe the dew point was 71 or 72. Is that correct? Depending on when the time the race started, 7 or 8, it was like 69 or 71. Yeah. That is absolutely miserable. It, it's basically like running through a swimming pool. But we still saw some very fast times. Connor Mance wins the men's title in 59.08. And on the women's side, we saw a course and event record by Kira D'Amato. She took down Emily Sisson, the U.S. half marathon record holder. And she won it in 64.29, which was quite a ways under the old event record by Colin DeRoyk from 1998, 65.11. So... Robert is going to have a little recap of this in the week that was as well. And his way of looking at it was both of these athletes are running marathons this fall. Both of them are looking to run fast. So he translated these performances into marathon paces. Mantis is 204.45 marathon pace for 20K. So a little under half marathon. And Kira D'Amato's was 216.02 marathon pace. So... Translating that, that's about a 68.01 half marathon for Kira. That's very good. That will be just a little slower than her personal best, which she ran a month before running the American record in January. So I think she's right on track for her quest at the American record in Berlin. We're only two weeks away from that now. So I'm excited by both of these performances, particularly given the the muggy conditions. What do you guys think? Well, I, I thought it was a good sign for Damato, particularly. I mean, well, she's we already know she's really good, but she's basically running 68 flat pace for 20k in muggy conditions. You know, I mean, they're very similar based on what their goals are, and that was part of my piece. Is look, she wants to break 219. Her American record is 219.12, so it's three minutes off that. Mant said after the race that he wants to break 208, you know, assuming he has a good one. He thinks that's realistic. So he's 315 off that pace, you know, if he doubles his time. And if his sky hell dream is sub 207, which would be 206. But, you know, Mant's beat, um, you know, Leonard Career, who's a 207.56 guy. If you look at these times, the pace they were running compared to their goals, let's say their goal is 208 flat for Mance and 219.12 for D'Amato, it's Mance ran 97.5% of that pace, and D'Amato ran 97.7%. So, I don't know. I, I think that we're a long way. I mean, you know, let's be honest. Mance is running 62-minute half, half marathon pace for less than a half marathon. It's not like it was a mind-blowing performance. But can he run 207? Yes. Does this mean he's going to run 207? Or does this mean that she's going to break her own American record? No. But... You know, I'm optimistic. I'm also pleased to see Emily Sisson back running well. She was only a few seconds back behind D'Amato because, you know, she's running Chicago. She's got a few extra weeks to train as compared to D'Amato. It wouldn't shock me if she goes under 220. No, it wouldn't. When you've run 67-11 for a half marathon, I think you should be able to run 
220 or a little under for Sisson. And this, remember, it's been a while since she's actually tried a marathon. She dropped out of the trials in 2020. Before that was London in 2019. This is only her second marathon. Well, it'll be a third. She only And she's only finished one of those two. So yeah, I'm excited for her. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Robert. I do think, though, look, does this guarantee... You can't ever guarantee an American record for Kira Damano, but after this performance, I think I'm probably going to predict an American record in Berlin because of how well she's recovered from the World Championship Marathon, running 223 there with barely two weeks head up, heads up that she was running. We saw she already ran 219 earlier this year. Then she runs the Falmouth Road Race and wins that. And now she's run super fast in New Haven in terrible conditions. I think as long as the weather's good in Berlin, she's going there with the specific goal of running the American record. I'm sure she's going to have paces set up to do just that. She'll have men to run with. She beat Emily Sisson by over a minute in this race. I, I'm very high on what D'Amato is going to be able to do in Berlin now. Yeah, so am I, John. It's two weeks away, a week from the Sunday? It's two, two weeks from Sunday. Yeah. Two weeks from two days ago or, or three weeks from no, two, two days weeks, ago. Two weeks from this coming Sunday. Okay. Actually, I'm, I'm, that makes me feel even better. I'm like, oh, I'd rather have a little more time. But it seems to be going in all cylinders, especially if you sort of factor in this weather, the humidity. I mean, Berlin, usually you get really good weather. And I mean, the, the times in Berlin are just always fast. You know, people speculate. Is this complete bullshit or not? People speculating about the trees and whatnot, that there's more oxygen in the air. I mean, <laughs> but when people go there, it's either true or like this Berlin is super fast. No matter what it is, for whatever reason, Berlin is fast. It's the fastest course. So I, I'd like to steer lower the record. I mean, in today's era, let's, let's, Keep knocking it down because we need more women thinking, look, oh, well, I can run 218, more American women, 217, whatever it is. Yeah. And for Mance, I, this was a good win. And I think two, normally you would say an American, he's talking about running sub 208 in his debut. Think this guy's full of shit. Do you realize how many Americans have ever broken 208 in the marathon? I was pulling that up as we speak, but no, I do not. But I'll, I'll respond to that while you tell me the stats so I don't have to look it up. Do you realize how many Americans have run the marathon when they're in the prime of their career and they just ran 1310 for 10,000, for 5,000? Oh, d d look, the, the answer is five. Only five guys have ever done it. Ryan Hall, Khalid Kanuchi, Galen Rupp, Dathan Ritzenheim, Leonard Correa. And I was going to say, normally you would say someone's full of shit for saying they got a debut in sub 208. No, I don't think so in this case because Connor Mance has everything you would want. I think he's the best marathon prospect to come, American marathon prospect to come out of the NCAA since Galen Rupp. And even then, Galen Rupp, you would say he was more of a track guy and Galen was going to be running the track for a while. Mance, I think everyone knew as soon as he came out, this is a guy who should be going for the roads and that's where his success is going to ultimately lie. Mance still likes to run the track and has done very well running on the track. He was fourth at USA's in the 5,000 earlier this year. Like you said, he's run 13-10 indoors. He's had success, but I think he was made for the grinding part of the marathon. He really loves to lay the hurt on people. He's not afraid to hurt himself. We saw that when he won NCAA Cross twice in college. So 
I do think that's a pretty reasonable time. And if you listen to his interview with Kyle Merber after the race, he was saying, yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot of stuff at marathon pace, like 450s. And then I come down to sea level. I'm like, wait a minute, 450 marathon pace. That's 206 pace. And that's at altitude. That doesn't mean he's going to run 206. But if he's doing that kind of stuff at altitude that quickly, yeah, I think this guy is going to take to the marathon very nicely. It wouldn't shock me to see him run sub 208. It's going to depend a little on race dynamics and weather in Chicago. But this is one of the most, this is going to be the most excited I've been for a marathon debut by an American, maybe since Galen Rupp in the 2016 trials. I mean, that U.S. all-time list is kind of interesting. God, we've sucked at the marathon for all these years. But, you know, you've got the 500-208 that you mentioned. Then it goes Abdi-2856. No, 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 no. You're not counting the guys who've run in Boston. Yeah. Correct. But Oh, okay. Because, like, Meb ran 208-37 when he won Boston. I, I'm kind of counting some of these Boston times. Meb, Salazar, Kempinen. Scott Fobble, Dick Beersley, these are all, you know, wind-aided times. But anyways, what I was trying to say was, like, Wait, Marty Hitt... Come on, it's not windy in Boston every year. It's point-to-point, but it doesn't mean the Mebs 208-37 was wind-aided. Okay, maybe Mebs wasn't wind-aided? Some of them were. Bob, Bob like Kippen, Kippen yes. certainly was. Scott Fobble certainly was. I'm not sure about Beard. No, Beardsley was dueling the sun, right? But those are 2854s. Anyways, for the non Marty Hayher, now admittedly that was on the Marathon Project, but he ran two eight fifty nine. But Connor Mance is, I mean, Marty Hayher was top ten NCAA cross. Connor Mance was the champion twice. Well, twice in the same year. So let's put an asterisk next to that. If you know, I'm not putting that. He won NCAA cross twice. I mean, okay, it was eight months apart, but eight months apart, twelve months apart, is it really that big a difference? It's like saying my, my my mom gave birth twice. I mean, no, it's not. It's not like he ran it the next day. It's a whole different season. It's like saying he's the NCAA 10K champ and the NCAA cross country champ. Those meets, I mean, NCAA cross and NCAA 10K, they're only five months apart. Should they, we just say, oh, it's the same thing? No. Different races, different season. But. Basically, these guys that are 209 flat guys like Marty Hayher, I mean, his 5,000 PB is 1329. 1310 is, is, you know, six, seven seconds per mile faster, which is going to be two minutes faster in a marathon, two plus. Noah Drotty's running like 209 flat. He's basically welding. He's run 2807 for 10,000. So, yeah, I, I think 207 is realistic for sure. Okay, I think that's going to do it for a re racing recap from the previous week. There was one other thing I wanted to touch on. We have the Diamond League final coming up this week in Zurich. It's one of the best meets of the year. I mean, Thursday, it's just so... You get Diamond League final after Diamond League final on the track on Thursday. Then we also have the Wednesday portion, which has the 5,000s on that ridiculous 560-meter banked egg track and the Zurich city center. I mean, it'll be fun to watch because you've got Grant Fisher and Alicia Monson who could actually contend in those races, but it is a bit silly. I wish the diamond league would just have them run in the stadium, but I was going to complain about this because 
this is the Diamond League final, one of the most important trap meets of the entire season. And the Diamond League website does not currently have the start list on there. They, I, I mean, technically, they're on there. They're buried there, though. We had to find the links from a different website, Watch Athletics, and then redirect to the Diamond League site. But if you go on the, res the results page and the links that the Diamond League has sent out to the start list, they don't work for Thursday's events. And we're recording this right now on Tuesday afternoon. And then Peacock, which is has the rights to this meet in the United States, they don't actually have any sort of links to whether this thing is going to be streamed live on Wednesday or Thursday. That's just unclear right now. And as a consumer of the sport, it has me very frustrated. This is one of the biggest tracks meets of the in the entire world, and we can't find out who's it takes so much effort to find out who's running it and whether we can watch it on television in the united states is our sport a total joke how is this not better more how is this not better robert well, that's why there's let's run people aren't going to the diamond looks website looking for the shortlist they're coming to let's run to look for your previews john i i do think it's a it's a joke that we don't know if the meets on tv it just shows you what a low priority it is for these TV networks. But we don't know if it's going to be on in the U.S. But, look, would I prefer that it's on a 400-meter track? But, yes. But what I always complain about, that every, like when you guys talk to Frank Shorter, I hope you ask him, like when he raced, the marathons weren't rabbited. Would you rather see a rabbited race or a real race? And I think this Diamond League final in the men's 5,000 is good for Fisher. We want to see him beat more of these guys. He's got Krupp. He's got Kameli. He's got Kajulcha in this race. Borega, Aragawi, Induukawawa, Wabalu. This thing's loaded. If he can compete, the only guy we're really missing is Shepta guy, right, John? Well, there, there's a guy by the name of Jakob Ingebrigtsen as well. Well, this is why he doesn't have the medal. We're missing Ingebrigtsen, <clears throat> Shepta guy, and also the other Ugandan. Um, Oscar Chalimo. For the record, Grant did beat guy in the World Championship 5000 final. But Chalimo and Ingebrigtsen, who went 1-3, neither of them are running here. No, I'm talking about the other, the uh, former half-marathon world record. Kip, Kip Limo. Still yeah. the current, he's the current half-marathon world record holder. But, yeah, I just, I don't know. We had the Labor Day weekend here in the U.S. We haven't had time to get the previews up. We were going to try to write them, and now we, we can't find the start list. Now, we did find them, but it's hard. We're not even sure if they meet on TV tomorrow. But I want to see Fisher compete. And, you know, I'd also like to see the sport better promoted. But that's our job, John. It gives us something to do. So it should be a good one. After the, the Diamond League final on Thursday is over, we'll do an instant reaction show, which will serve as our bonus podcast for the week. So check that out. But... This Frank Shorter interview. Is there anything else you want to say about the Diamond League final? Oh, uh, I mean, can you do this, John? Can you compile a list of all the stars? Excuse me. All the... Well, I don't even know if they've qualified, though. I was going to have a shame list of all the American stars that have qualified for Worlds for the Diamond League final but aren't there. But maybe they haven't qualified. Like Sydney McLaughlin, did she even qualify? Ajay Wilson, where are you? Awthing Mo, where are you? Um, Sydney McLaughlin hasn't run a Diamond League meet in three years. Of course she didn't qualify. Oh, so she's got a good excuse for not being there. What? She's, I mean, her excuse is she's not allowed to compete. She did not qualify. Now, I think Mo won a Diamond League earlier this year in Rome, so I'm not sure if she, maybe she still didn't have enough points, but 
she doesn't appear to be racing at all the rest of the year. I know what you wanted to discuss before Frank Shorter. Jake Whiteman is running the 800, not the 1500. Off air, you a Brit. You're at least a half Brit, John. You said, oh, can we now say he's officially ducking Ingebrigtsen? Will you say that on, on air now? <laughs> well, it's a, it's my question is I can see the f- argument to this point why he hasn't raced Ingebrigtsen since Worlds. And obviously they race each other at Worlds on the biggest stage. But, okay, you don't want to run three straight 1500s at Europeans between Worlds, Commonwealths, and Europeans. The fact that he ran Europeans at all, I give him credit for showing up. And I thought that was great. I don't have any problem with him not doing the 800 without with not him not doing the 1500 there. Running the 1500, sorry, running the 800 in Brussels last week instead of the Lausanne 1500 where Ingebrigtsen was. I don't really have an issue with that either. If he wants to drop down to an event, and he's been running a lot, this gives him a little bit more time to recover. Now, in terms of the Diamond League final. You put it to me this way. You said, what does he have a better chance to win, the 800 or the 1500? And you said the 8, and I I think you're right. I think with the pacemaking, that really helps Yaka because he's going to have someone to lead the first kilometer or so of the 1500, and then he can take over. It's a more scripted style of race, which plays more into Jakob's hands. Whereas the 800, we just saw Whiteman beat everyone fairly convincingly in Brussels last week. So I think you're right about that. But at the same time, what, am I, what would I be more excited for as a fan? Whiteman in the 800 and Ingebrigtsen in the 15 or both of them racing each other in the 15 in a rematch of Worlds? It's obviously the latter. And I don't know if you would call it dodging it, but that's the most exciting matchup and it's not happening. Yeah. If, if the sport existed just to entertain you and me, he'd be in the 1500. And imagine if he won that race, it would be massive for next year. It would just, you would expect it, it would be like, okay, Jakob's the underdog. It's hard to believe, but he's the underdog. But I, I don't have a problem with him running the 800. He, he achieved his dream in the 1500. He then gets beat at Commonwealth. Maybe his training's not as good as the end of the season. And, you know, it's just maybe he was celebrating a little bit. Fitness isn't quite there. And you go to the 1500, you're a little bit off your game, a super fast pace, you end up fourth or fifth. It's kind of demoralizing. And the 800, he can only, in the 1500, all he can really do is, is do what he's done before, but it's unlikely to happen. So he's likely to be disappointed. And the 800 is all bonus. Like he could run a PB, he could win this race. And then he's really established himself as sort of an old school British type legend. 815, he can do both, like Co. So I totally get it. I don't have a problem with it. I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't have a huge issue with it. I would, like I said, I'd like to see him in the 1500, but I think you're wrong saying only bad things can happen in the 15. If he goes to the 15 and beats Jakob again, people are going to be like, the people who said, oh, the 1500 was a fluke or Jakob's been the fittest guy, then they'll be like, oh, wait, no. Whiteman's been the best guy all along. He didn't want Con- win Conwell's because he was tired, but this was the year of Whiteman. It wasn't a fluke. Like, he's the guy. I think he could change the narrative of the season if he beats Ingebrigtsen again in the Diamond League final. But he's not going to do that, John. He lost the But, but you're saying like, okay, you all right. I guess you're just, you're saying how you think it was. And good. all along, did, did you watch what happened in Oslo? That was a destruction. 
So they can't say oh, all that's along. True. That's true. I forgot he was in the Oslo race. That's that's fair point. But he he ran three fifty point three when when Ingebrigtsen ran three forty six. True, true, true. All right. I I've, that's a no. Hey, that's my role is to point out the errors of hot takes with statistical facts from it. Watch out, you're encroaching on my territory. But no, I, I think there's an upside for him. But I kind of get if you think, oh, the upside only exists if he's going to win the race. And if you win the race, you're the best guy. And you don't think that's going to happen. So I, I see what you're saying there. But I do think it would be pretty awesome. I mean, remember how awesome it was when Chariot and Ingebrigtsen raced each other in the Diamond League final last year after they raced each other in the Olympics? It was sick. Coming down the home straight, they're right together. Chariot beats him. It's a ton of fun. So that's kind of what I was hoping for again this year. But alas. All right, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode until we get to the... We'll have the Frank Shorter interview for you right now. And just a reminder, we will have our post-Brussels... Sorry, post-Zurich Diamond League recap podcast about 4.10 p.m. Eastern Time on Thursday. Or if you're part of the Let's Run.com Supporters Club, you can get it in your feed on demand. And to join, that's letsrun.com slash subscribe if you want to get access to the supporters club podcast all right here he is the olympic champion frank shorter hello everyone and welcome to a special live edition of the let's run.com track talk podcast tonight we're privileged to be joined by a very special guest will be familiar to any let's run.com visitor frank shorter Frank was the 1969 NCAA six-mile champion at Yale University. He was a six-time U.S. champion on the track, but he's best known for his marathon exploits. He won the Fukuoka Marathon, then the unofficial world championships four straight years from 1971 to 74, and was ranked number one in the world by Track and Field News three years in a row. Most famously, he won the 1972 Olympic gold medal in Munich in the marathon, and this was after finishing fifth in the 10,000 earlier in those Olympics and breaking the American record in the prelims. Yes, prelims. They had them in those days in the 10K and the final. Pretty impressive stuff. Four years later, Frank earned the Olympic marathon silver in Montreal behind Valdemar Sopinski, who many believe to have been part of East Germany's doping regime of the 1970s. Frank has maintained a commitment to clean sport throughout his life. He helped establish the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency and served as its chairman from 2000 to 2003. And the 50-year anniversary of Frank's Olympic marathon win is this Saturday, September 10th. So that is why we are so thrilled to be able to talk to him tonight. Frank, thank you for joining us. And I guess first question, how are you celebrating the 50-year anniversary? Do you have any plans this weekend? Yes, very quietly, my wife and I, Michelle, were traveling to Pennsylvania and um, to a road race that's going to be there north of Philadelphia in New Hope, um, Pennsylvania. And we'll just, um, she asked me earlier tonight what, what we might want to do. And we'll just sit down and maybe watch, you know, get on, get on, you know, the internet and, and watch the race and just kind of think about, um, you know, how it was. And there are other celebrations that have taken place. One was in Boulder, Colorado on Memori- around Memorial Day because I'm uh, in- involved in a race there called the Boulder Boulder. I helped to start it. And um, we had a celebration there for people 
in the Boulder community. And there's also going to be a celebration uh, in Florida, uh, in Gainesville, that the Florida Track Club is putting on uh, that's actually going to be in January around Martin Luther King weekend. So those are the kind of celebratory moments. And it just, and, and again, um, we, Michelle and I never really thought about what we do on that day, but I think it's going to be a very quiet day and contemplative and we'll be thankful and, and thanking, thanking God that, that all this could take place. And, and I, I think that's the way it should be because I like to think it fits in with, um, how I thought about my chances, uh, going into the Olympics, um, say two years before and how that all just kind of came together in a way that, um, who, who could have imagined. And so I think it's, Again, something where you don't, uh, I, I think I want to really understand um, how, how it just, in a way, was meant to happen and um, that I was so fortunate I got to be part of it. So I, I don't want it to be this sort of huge fanfare situation because, uh, you know, it was just the culmination of a lot of different things. and a puzzle coming together in the perfect order. Um, and, uh, we'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll just see, and we're just going to be happy and we're going to participate in the race the next day and, uh, interact with people the way I did before all this happened in a way. And since it happened. And so it, it, it just kind of my way of thinking be continuity. So I want to ask about the race. Uh, you come in, you had won Fukuoka the year before, so that has to put you among the favorites. Like, did you think you considered yourself the favorite going in? And it seems like a couple years earlier, you didn't think you could reach that point. So how did you think of your chances in 1972? And how did you think of your chances, I guess, a couple years earlier? I, this, I'm getting back to what I, I was just about, which I was just talking. It just seemed the timing was right. Uh, the year before, I had never thought of running a marathon. Um, and in 1971, Kenny Moore talked me into running the Pan American Games Marathon Trial, which was a month in Eugene, a month before the track trials. And, and his explanation to me was, well, this will be a hedge. You know, he said, and we run 20 miles together, you know, frequently because we would train together in Europe. When we were over there, Steve Prefontaine and I, Steve never ran 20 miles, but we, we would run 20 miles every Sunday. And he said, you know, and if you make the team, uh, you know, that takes pressure off on making the Pan Am team at 10,000 meters the next month, month later. So I, in a way, naively said, okay, I'll give it a try. And uh, we ran and we ran together and in the lead. With, with a substantial lead to 22 miles and the quote that that has been attributed to me that is true because kenny used to love to sort of write down things we talk about i turned to kenny at 22 miles and i said kenny why couldn't Phidippides have died here and because that was my first experience going beyond 20 miles and i was at 22 miles so kenny ran on beat me well finished ahead of me by oh 
45 seconds and I qualified for the Pan Am team. And then um, I realized, oh my gosh, I have to do this again. <laughs> and so I qualified for both the 10,000 uh, a month later and the marathon and won both races in Cali, Colombia uh, later that summer. And there were representatives from Fukuoka, the race that you mentioned, which was the de facto world championships. And they invited me to Fukuoka. And I decided at Fukuoka that since I was a track runner, uh, I would try to use track tactics in the marathon rather than simply what it, uh, until that point, the marathon, I always uh, talked about it as a race of attrition. Everybody starts out, people slow down. The last person that doesn't slow down wins. And um, they, they didn't have breakaways. They didn't have um, surges the, the way they did in the track. And, and so, in essence, um, in retrospect, I decided to turn the marathon into a track race to a certain degree. That first Fukuoka race, my second, my third marathon, I took off at about 15 miles at a hairpin turn. And Aki Usami, who at that time had won Fukuoka the year before, was the number one ranked marathon runner, tried to go with me. He couldn't. Everybody was left behind. I got a 30-second lead on him and actually maintained that lead for about eight miles to the finish. And so that's when the seed was planted. So I then, over the next year actually adapted my um, interval training to practice surging in the middle of a race. And um, the, the whole theory was to get to a point where I could surge and then even if it went with me, I could slow down and I could recover more quickly to surge again. And um, it worked. And and so I even if one more detail people want to know what got written, I started to run interval training, uh, basically um, focusing on what I felt felt was my strength, which was my ability to surge at race pace faster to a faster pace than anyone could finish, and then back off and be able to start surging again before other people could. And, and that was just my theory and, and, um, stuck to it and it worked. I'm interested in your training because you did something that not a lot of marathoners do these days, which is run the 10,000 and the marathon at the same Olympics. So when you're going into Munich, are you focused on one event more than the other, or were you trying to train in a way that you could have success in both? No, I, I train saying, and, and I guess there's certain irony here in that I trained like a 5,000 meter runner. My track workouts basically were 5,000. The person who came close to running the track was Steve Prefontaine. And we used to actually run track workouts together that Bill Dellinger would get him his workout. And I would have my workout based on, I was my own coach by that time. And they were pretty much the same. 
so I, it was very fast paced. And, um, and again, I'm, again, if, I don't know how people train now, but I pretty much never ran any distance of interval training up to a mile at slower than 55 seconds per 400 meter pace. You know, 420 mile pace, even if I were doing repeat miles, I didn't run more slowly. And, um, that was just what I did. And so I think, again, I had this sense that, that I, I wasn't fast in a sprint, but I was fast in an extended sort of effort. And that I also was finding out that I recovered very quickly between repeats. And so um, I'm not sure it was, um, and, and again, you, you work with, and you work at that point in your career, and that's what I came to realize. I think, and I don't again know exactly how all the coaches and scientists, you know, talk about it today. But I really, I had a sense that once you reach a certain point in your training, you work on your strengths, not your weaknesses, because everyone is to a certain level, and then. I think it's the person who can really focus on his or her strengths and and really develop those strengths. That's what can give them, you know. But I was lucky. I, I got coached myself. And, and uh, you know, now, as you said, nowadays people don't run marathon. But we never thought about, you know, how much you needed to recover um, um, you know, you just ran a race and then you jogged slowly and then ran another race. Um, so yeah, I can understand why you were focused, but the other thing I enjoyed in Olympics and it's just at the flying west, you know, <laughs> it has to model being my roommate in the 1970 in there in our room with this new white gun because they just got married and forged passes. So every significant other could get in there and i was sleeping on the balcony and dave wins and gold medal is up on the dresser you know i, I didn't have to wait um for all that time to run the marathon and we something to do and i was always good at, at repeating and having short recovery again you know, when you mentioned I won a six mile in the NCAAs in 1969, the next day I finished second in the three mile. And it, and I never thought about the fact that it was one day after the six mile. And, and so short answer to the question is I didn't think about it. You were talking, you were telling a story about Dave Waddle and I think that got almost all of that was broken up. So I'm just asking you to repeat that if that's all right. Yeah. To when you ask about, uh, you know, why I would run the 10,000 meters and the marathon um, as well, even though there was a trial race in the 10,000 and a final and then the marathon, um, that was just my pattern. I grew up in high school running the mile at the beginning of the track meet and the two mile at the end of the track meet. You know, I was, I was used to running a lot, you know, in, in competition. And so... I also uh, just like the idea that why not run as many 
racist as you can, because I think it 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 brings up a point um, about uh, my reasons for trying to put all this effort into the marathon to begin with. I I just wanted to find out how good I could be, and in a way, a corollary to that is I just wanted to find out how I would do if I ran all both races in the Olympics. It wasn't that, well, I'm going to try to win both. It was, okay, I'm a 10,000 meter runner. I'm new to the marathon. Let's see how I do in both. And it never in a way occurred to me that I was, you know, that the rest mattered. I was just finding out if I could do it in a way that satisfied my desire to find out about myself and what I could do. I hope that makes sense. You know, because I'd never expected to run beyond college and I just happened to get much better very quickly towards the end. And so again, for me, it was a way, okay, let's find out. You know, you're improving so quickly. Let's find out where you level off. And so running both those races was part of that process of finding out where I would level off. And fortunately for me, I guess I didn't level off. <laughs> I just I just kept improving. And and so I, I, I hope that sort of explains it. I've talked to, you know, a number of top athletes and yeah, sometimes it's just as simple as they want to find out how good they can be. They want to test themselves. I know Safan Hassan tripling at the Olympics last year. It's just yeah. something she wanted to do. Uh, and the great ones have that in common. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm not so sure about the great, but I think it's a it's a personality trait. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to ask, you mentioned Dave Waddle. YouTube would the two Olympic gold medalists in sort of the distance events for America at those Olympics in Munich and you roommates, which is pretty astounding. Isn't that and great? <laughs> he, he won the gold medal the night before your 10,000 final. So right. what was that like? Were you able to sleep at all? Was he partying? How'd it go? That was fine. We didn't, you know, we weren't huge partiers. We just kind of, you know, congratulated each other and, and there weren't really banquet rooms. In, in the Olympic Village, and, and Dave and Jam went out and celebrated, and because uh, they had family there, and um, you know, I just went to bed. <laughs> On the, and and it casual is not the word. It's I I think it's again compartmentalization maybe the word. You know, at that level, um, you know. Dave wins. He comes back and he says, okay, let's go. Jan, come on, let's go have dinner. And I don't know what they did and celebrated and everything else. And I told him how happy I was for him. And by the way, I was standing next to Jan when Dave was coming down that final straightaway um, because we had great tickets because we forged these passes for our significant others. And this particular pass allowed um, this bearer of the Forge credential into any athlete section in any venue at the Olympic Games. So I'm standing, and we're looking at this finish line in the 800, and she's standing next to me. And we're literally 30 
30 yards away. And he comes around and he comes that last step and he passes ours enough. And, and I think we both realized, I think he did it. And I looked down at my arm and she had almost drawn blood in my arm with, with her fingernails. And so, you know, that's the kind of connection, um, you know, that I remember. It's not that kind of, you know, oh, celebration. Oh, we did it. Because um, Dave was just so, so subtle and so good. And again, his timing was perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. Legendary race. It always, I always see it pop up on, you know, YouTube or Twitter this time of year. And especially this year being the 50th anniversary. Uh, right. It's pretty cool to revisit. And if you check the results and, and I, again, I think his splits were 25, nine, 25, nine, 25, nine, 25, nine. He did not negative split. And the 800 is never, is no is always almost always negative split, right? He ran even splits for every two hundred meters <laughs> of that race. So he didn't catch people. Everybody came back, mm-hmm. and 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 it, it it again it was the perfect timing, and he knew, and and um and I talked about working on your strengths. He knew that was his strength. He knew he didn't slow down like other people in the last 200. And so he was willing to, you know, take that risk and it turned out right for him. So I wanted to ask, you know, obviously the 1972 Olympics were marred by the massacre that took place five days before your race. Palestinian terrorist group kidnapped and killed 11 Israeli athletes. You know, a tremendously sad, difficult situation for everyone at the time. And there's an article right now that's on the homepage of Let'sRun.com. You mentioned in an interview with Randy Maniloff, the way you dealt with it was that you do that over which you have control. And what we had control of was our training. So I'm curious in the days between the kidnapping and the massacre and the race, were you out there running? Were you able to leave the Olympic Village to go for a run? How did you prepare? Yeah, well, we we watched the TV because Steve Prefontaine was actually fluent in German because his mother was German. And we realized what was going on. And um, once we got over the shock of what was happening, and this is interesting, I think, um, that we all felt this is over. We're going home. That was the initial, you know, shock reaction. And now the psychologists have all the, you know, phases you go through. Um, but we were in shock. And um, again, you talk about having control. Well, we had control over our training. Yes. And so a lot of us, no, don't remember how many, put on our stuff and jogged out to the back gate of the Olympic Village. And uh, there was just one gate. And guards at the gate for the we've been there two weeks and we got to know sort of all the guards so we got jogged to the back gate and it was closed right it was locked lockdown <laughs> and the guards had guns <laughs> and, and the same people we knew from before and we sort of looked and we climbed the fence 
<laughs> we just climbed the fence in front of them. And, and they didn't know what to do because, again, no one knew what to do. It was the first terrorist act of its kind. And so we went over and we would go out and run and train. But there it really was stress relief. You know, it's what we could do to kind of deal with everything that was going on. And, and I think the best thing you could do is maintain your team. And, 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 you know, I think anyone who exercises knows that you use exercise, no matter what the motion is, to sort of let things process when you're going easily. So we did that. And so we went out and trained. And then I did, uh, and we then went to the memorial service the next day. So it was operating very quickly. But before I get into that, you know, that day we then come back from training and we're on the balcony looking out over the Olympic Village and we can see the, you know, the Israeli quarters and the guy with the mask and submachine gun. And um, that passes and then the helicopters flew right over our heads um, once they got to a point later in the day early evening around dusk where uh, we see from the TV that they've reached some sort of arrangement to take everyone out to the Munich airport and the helicopters came in and we saw the helicopters leave. And I, I turned to Kenny Moore, you know, who was training partner and friend and um, said, Kenny, I don't think it's over. And we learned the next morning that no, they'd all, been killed um, at the airport, and we had the memorial service, and we didn't know what was going to happen there, so we walked over, because uh, it's only about a half mile from the Olympic Village to the stadium, and we went, and they had the service, and it was announced that the Olympics would go on, and we then left, but we delayed by a day, and we left and walked out and started over some causeways over the roads. You didn't have to go down to road level to get into the stadium from the Olympic grounds. And we started to walk down there, and I, I, I turned to Kenny, and I, and I said, you know, Kenny, the only place the terrorists can do anything here more is out on the Olympic marathon course. And I said, I'm not going to think about it because if I do, they win. And um, that night, and at that point, I just stopped thinking about it. And I woke up the day of the marathon, didn't think about it, ran the marathon, never thought about it, got done even that day and that night, never thought about it. And because, again, you talk about you do what you can over which you have some semblance of control. And, and I think, I don't think that's unique um, among the athletes um, at, you know, at the games, at, at the Munich games. Um, I think it's part of your training personality, I think, to be able to compartmentalize and focus. And um, so that's what we did. And so that was, um, that was how we dealt, how we dealt with it. So race day comes, you win the Olympic marathon, 212, 
19, over two minutes ahead of the silver medalist Carol Lismont of Belgium. And you return to the United States and the the running boom in the the years to come, the running starts taking off as a sport, participation sport in this country. And we, ha we have a question here actually from a Let's Run reader, uh, Bowbridge. He says, I'd like to know Frank's take on why he and Bill Rogers more or less jump-started the running boom in the USA back in the day. Do you guys just happen to be in the right place at the right time? Would there ever have been a running boom without you two guys? And why did your accomplishments catch the imagination of so many people? I got caught up in it in 1977, and I'm still running at 68 years old, as are many guys my age. So what do you think? I think, yes, Bill and I came around at the at um, at the right time. As a matter of fact, um, in in the fall of 1966, Yale and Wesleyan had a practice cross country meet at Yale on the golf course. Where this is 1966, Bill Bill was a freshman. I was a sophomore. Jeff Galloway was a junior, and Ambie Burfoot was a senior. So we ran together in 1966. And, and so whenever people ask the question about, you know, the start of the running boom, you know, it was, it really was a group of, of people and there was something going on there. There, there just was, but it, it was obviously more than just one thing. And I think a big part of why it happened was, um, my contribution, uh, I think in a big way was I just decided I didn't want to do um, what was the usual um, thing or response after winning an Olympic gold medal. And in the U.S. at the time, and I, I don't think I'm being facetious here, you came home, you hired a PR agency, and you endorsed some products, and then you went on with the rest of your life. And I... One of the thoughts I had up on the victory stand when I was getting the medal was, I just want to let this settle in so I can really see uh, to, for myself uh, where I want this to go and or would like it to go. And so I came back, went back to law school. Um, and I think at the same time, um, there was Bill <laughs> Rogers who watched me and the way I put it is, He's, he's doing his work at a, at a hospital at the time in, in Hartford, and he's, you know, and we knew each other, as I said. And so the way I put it is he probably took one last big puff on the cigarette he was smoking and, and put it out and said, I can do that. <laughs> and he could. And, and so, you know, it, it, it sounds... It, it, I, I guess it's a, an interesting slant on serendipity, but it, it, it's kind of the way, you know, those things work. A lot of people around and certain people emerge. And then I think the other th and, and the other part was that Bill and I were basically the same age. We're a month apart in age. But I, I matured in running er several years earlier than he did. And so his career went later because I've always had a theory. You have about five years at the top if you're lucky. And when that five years comes is your place. And fortunately for the running boom, our careers overlapped. So for a while, I could actually finish ahead of them. <laughs> and then that went away. But the point is, we were first or second in the world 
uh, in the marathon for many years. Okay, there's that. But the other part of it was, I think the knowledge of health, exercise physiology was coming in. And it started really in the late 1960s. And one of the first um, uh, scientists, medical scientists to really study this was Ken Cooper in Dallas. This doctor from Oklahoma went down to Dallas and started the Cooper Institute and invented the term aerobics. And he started to quantify fitness. And so he that was the first indication of you do this much exercise and, and accumulate this many points and your health will improve. You sort of set a minimum standard. And there were other tests from the 50s. Harvard had a test called the STEP test. Believe it or not, in the 50s, they were charting Harvard graduates to see, you know, over time as they were aging, how exercise would impact their longevity and health. So a lot of these things were coming um, together at the same time. But I, I do think, Bill, in, in my contribution in many respects was that we decided to stick around because we liked the, we loved to run and we wanted to keep running. And so then you had to figure out a way to earn a living. And we kind of dealt with that problem uh, in terms of opening up the sport to prize money. Well, first of all, I haven't said a word. I've been just listening for 30 minutes. So this is fascinating. But it's a small world. One, I went to Yale. So I want to personally thank you. There would be no Let's Run. I mean, there's this little community of runners solely because of you. Like, I... At Yale, I was a kind of mediocre or decent runner at Yale, and I thought I could get better because they're like, oh, Frank Shorter used to do these runs. So I just dreamed of trying to do what Frank Shorter did. Now, I, I never came close, but I got fourth in the country at the 10K a couple of times and started Let's yeah. Run because I was I was I wanted to keep training like you. Like, I loved running. So I just want to thank you. And there's tons of people in Let's Run and in the comments here saying, like, Frank Shorter's the reason I did my first run and all this other stuff. So, like, even though... Munich was one year before I was born. It's it's pretty cool to be here. And Ken Cooper's son was Tyler Cooper was on my high school team in Dallas. So yeah, you know, it's a very small world and very cool. Yeah, and and that's it. You know, you're you're just so thankful that you can be around and be part of it. And and um and part of running is the friends you make doing it. And I, and I think part of the running boom came around and what I was trying to explain and not very well was that you can have people like Jack Batchelor and, and Jeff Talloway and John Parker, who I trained with Steve Prefontaine and everyone else. And at the time there was a spirit of cooperation and it wasn't, it wasn't fake wasn't contrived because at that time we had we wanted to support each other because in the same way you realize that on a team if you train together even though in the race you try to beat each other's brains out like Cree and I used to do um, we train together and it you know that you both get better and there was something like this going on with all of us who were trying to in a way survive so that we could keep running and and um you know that that spirit and and again i'm not being maudlin here but you know it, 
obviously things change and we have part of that. I mean, I was involved in opening up the sport to prize money and uh, I have some regrets about that, but I realized it was inevitable. And at the time I did it, it was totally against my self-interest because I was at the point where I wasn't going to win that much money, but I could still get appearance money. And uh, so, you know, you know we, we all sense this sort of, um, not communal, but effort of, of working together. And we truly appreciated each other and, it, and admired each other's performances. And, and, and I think that has really a lot of that has to do with the fact that there just weren't, there, there weren't two huge entourages at that point. You know, it's just, it was we runners and the good coaches, you know, like at Greater Boston and, and you know, out in actually the Southern California Striders and then, you know, the Florida Track Club and, and, and they, we really liked each other. I guess that's the way to put it. <laughs> we didn't have any reason not to. And, and, and we all realized that this, what we were trying to move forward on, which was running and increase the interest and in not so much the popularity, but interest. And, and there was a self-interest there. The self-interest is more interest there is the longer I can keep going. But, but I think it was, again, a, a, a different kind of um, um, uh, situation. It, it just wasn't all for profit, but it wasn't nonprofit. But, you know, we, we just wanted to um, uh, keep going because we just like to run. And that's when you talk about to get back to the running boom. I think what happened there was because of this sort of confluence of events and people and, you know, history and science and everything else. Yeah, people would start to run. And then there are certain people. I hope it's okay to put it this way, but I think you're one of them. It's, we find out we have this, what I call a disease, but it's a good disease. And it's, we just love moving across the ground running. And, and, um, and you, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to have that same feeling. And, and I think that's, that's really what happened. People discovered that, well, yeah, I'm, this is popular. So I'm going to try something popular and they say it's good for my health. So I'm going to do it for my health. And then there are certain people who try it and go, I really like this. And it, it, it suits me. It, it allows me to deal with certain things. And, and I just get this certain satisfaction. And I believe it's way beyond endorphins. And that, that group just turned out to be a lot larger than any of us ever thought it would be. You mentioned something about when you were helping to open the sport up to prize money about regrets. Are those regrets you still have? Can you expand on what you meant by that? Well, the, the regret is, you know, once the money got there, then there are also some ancillary people making that, that can make money off it too. Um, and, you know, you had the shoe companies and, and um, uh, agents and, and other people, and it just added more layers um, to the life. And, and I think that worked against uh, this sort of um, chim- uh, solidarity. That's not the right word. This, this feeling between all the running uh, enclaves in the country. The, the running enclaves were really fun because you could go from one to the other and everything be fine. And, and 
But then it got to the point where even one enclave, you would have problems within the enclave because of shoe companies and agents and other people. And so it did become more complicated, but that's the way life works. And so we knew that. So uh, it, it, I guess you're, you're right to point out and, and make me realize it's not really a regret. It's, it's more, um, I had a feeling that might happen, but I realized that if the sport were going to continue, this was history and I come along at a certain point and then it's going to move on. It seems like it was inevitable, right? Like you, right. You, you guys needed to make money, but then once you bring in money, stuff subtly changes. Cause I think, I mean, I'm a runner, John's a runner, the running community, even the pro Olympic runners, they still have some of this camaraderie, but what you, what you describe, it's gone. It's, it's not quite the same. It's still kind of there, but not, I don't know if it's the money or the agents. There's just a little more tension between people. And I don't, maybe that was going to happen if we were going to have a professional sport, but sort of, I guess, looking back 50 years, I mean, it's a long time. Obviously, running as an activity has really taken off, but like running as a sport, Olympic sport, we've got another Olympics coming here in what, six years now? Like, do you feel we had a rise in popularity, then a decline, or, or was it was running in a, as a spectator sport in, in its heyday in the 70s? Kind of how do you view running as a spectator sport versus an activity and where we are, the whole running boom? Yeah, I, I don't think that. I only think of that in terms of, the drug testing and performance. So um, I'm, I'm going to be honest and say, you know, my real focus is on truly trying to come as close to leveling the playing field as possible. And my reason for that is having been involved in the creation of US anti-doping, and it's been more than 20 years now, US anti-doping is still the template if you want to deal with the drug problem, just mimics the wrong word, but just duplicate the U.S. anti-doping system. Totally independent, does all the testing, in charge of all the penalties, all the repeals, everything, right? And then if that were to ever happen, but I'm not sure it's going to happen very soon, um, but once that happens, then I can maybe focus more on, uh, you know, um, predicting. I guess knowing the situation with regard to performance-enhancing drugs now, it makes me hard to predict, um, you know, what country might improve, how the U.S. might improve, because at this point, the the U.S. and and again, I guess that this is the way in which I I, I do regret this is I think the fact any any nation, not just the US, but any nation that is truly trying, truly trying to deal with this problem is at a disadvantage. Because they're not getting the support from the top. And all you have to do is look and see what's going on with regard to, you know, Russia and their athletes and everything else um, in that in that way. Um, until the people at the top decide it's really going to happen, it's not going to happen because as I said, the IOC could very easily today mandate, say every country has to have a system that basically 
um, is the same as the U.S. system, it's set up the same way, with the same safeguards and and eliminating conflict of interest. And um, um, and if they were to mandate that and enforce it, we um, you know then then I could talk more. I think about what what the future of the race is and. You know, a real irony here. And to give you an example, you say, well, I mean, can that really happen? The Balco raid, where Barry Bonds and others were implicated, now, it's years ago now, right? What, 2000? Oh, anyway. And at that time, there was an agent from, um, um, we, we had the USADA, had the IRS, and then... Um, some of the drug enforcement agencies, um, not drug enforcement, but, you know, FBI. And they were also on site. And the person who was there is now in charge of all drug testing for ultimate fighting. Jeff Nowitzki, right? And, and if you, what? Jeff Nowitzki. Yeah, Novitsky. And so Novitsky was at the raid of Balco, what I understand. He then takes basically that concept to, you know, ultimate fighting and says, we are going to mimic U.S. anti-doping and U.S. anti-doping is going to do testing for us. And this is the sport that you see. They are constantly monitoring it and constantly penalizing people. And, 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 and ironically, I can say now that ultimate fighting in terms of drug control is probably the cleanest entity in the world. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's cleaner than track and field. And, and so, you know, when you look at that and you go, yeah, you can do it. If the people on top and ultimate fighting has to be commended for this, they said, Early on, we're going to deal with this problem. We're going to take care of it. That's crazy that fighting could be one of the cleaner sports because, you know, right. stereotype, like, oh, they're all dirty. They're on, all on steroids. So big picture, like the two Olympic trials I did were 2000, 2004. USADA started in 2000. It was like a pioneering thing. You were the chairman of it. I mean, drug testing was an absolute complete joke before then. And now, twenty years later, I would say, like in the United States, it's much better. But yeah, how how clean do you think the sport is? I mean, I don't I don't know. It's pretty nuanced because it might be cleaner in certain places than others. But I mean, we've seen all these Kenyan busts and this sort of thing. And, and but just how do you view the sport now versus twenty years ago and, or fifty years ago? Oh, I think it's better than. 20 years ago and 50 years ago, but it's still not good. And, and sort of my answer to that is, I wish we could both talk to Travis Tiger, who's now in charge of U.S. anti-doping, to tell us off the record. <laughs> you know, I would love, I would love to really know what he thinks. And I, I do communicate with him. But what I can also tell you is one of the reasons USADA really started the work was right from the start, we said, we don't tell anybody what we're doing. <laughs> As we're over doing, how are things going? Well, eh, eh. and and if you're lucky, you get Travis writes the reasoned opinion, and certain cyclist goes away. You know, and and 
yeah, and you you take those and you hope that that you know those 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 things can come shining through. And you know, I want to be optimistic, but I don't want to be a Pollyanna uh, about it. And and as long as the I I can say this, and I've said this all the time, as long as the IOC decides they don't really want to do anything about Russia, um, we're just going to have to wait and see if it can get any better. I'm curious. Do you have an opinion on the Shelby Houlihan case? Because obviously she's one of the most prominent distance runners in America. Her case is handled by WADA, not you. Oh, sorry, it's handled by um, the Athletics Integrity Unit and not by USADA. So are you familiar with the case? And do you feel like it would have been different if USADA had been in control? Do you buy what she's selling? I guess any any thoughts you have on that? Yeah, no, and and I think I answered the question before when I said, you know, I'd still maintain the way I used to talk publicly when I was working with USADA. You know, you just my my personal opinion on that is not um, on 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 how they're doing, on you know what individual in in the process is doing because, quite honestly, I've been out of the loop for a long time. Mm-hmm. And and so I can, and I, and I hope you realize I'm not begging off here. I wish I, I wish I knew more, but I also understand that it it makes me feel good knowing that I don't know more, and in that it it still has to be um, uh, uncertain, and um, I don't you know I don't have access to you know the exact. Um, test results. And again, you, again, I, I'd refer over to U.S. anti-doping and ask them what they feel their um, opinion is. But the other thing is the Athletes Integrity Unit uh, is uh, raising some eyebrows. And again, it has this same um, feeling that you, USADA has had, which is they are truly independent. And and they're not answerable, and they don't feel pressure from anyone. And so, to my way of thinking, you know, the more the better. Hey, I wanted to ask. This is something. This is an issue doping that has affected your career because 1976, you finished second behind Sapinski, who you know his name has shown up in some of these Stasi files that you might be affiliated with the state-sponsored doping regime, like. At the time, did you when you finished second in that race? Do you suspect anything of him? Did you know he might have been doping at the time? Oh yeah, I I walked up to him, and he was wearing a white singlet, and he didn't have the East German crest on it. You know the logo medallion, and I thought it, it here's here's how my eye in terms of evaluating running and commentary, I thought he was Carlos Lopez. I ran the whole Olympic marathon in 76 thinking Cherpinski was Carlo Lopez because I had done, I had broken my ankle the February before the games and decided even though I won the Olympic trials, I wasn't going to run the 10 K. So I was doing commentary with Eric Siegel in, uh, in, in the stands in the 10,000 in 76 and where Lopez finished second. And I said, and I think it was on air. I said, that guy, be, that guy would make a good marathon runner just from watching the way he ran. So I was just what, eight years ahead of, ahead of, ahead of schedule. And, and 
I didn't know who he was because I hadn't seen him. And if you look at the records until the year before, his best was something like 215. Um, and so there was, and, and he'd run, I guess, 212 in the East Sherman trials, but we hadn't really received any word of that. So I, I didn't, you know, I, I, no, he, he wasn't on my radar. So I ran the whole race and, and, and I finished. And he ran a lap extra, you know. Do you remember that? He, he didn't even know how you were supposed to finish. You come into the stadium, you run down the final straightaway, and then you do another lap and finish. Well, he ran down the final straightaway um, and did two laps. <laughs> and, Trying to make it fair. Yeah, I guess. And so I was waiting for him at the finish. When he came by the second lap. And so I shook his hand and, and he said to me, Sprechen Sie Deutsch. And, and I thought, that's very, that, that is very unusual for someone from, <laughs> you know, Portugal to say. <laughs> At the end of the Olympic marathon. So, so I, um, and then when I found out he was from East Germany, yeah, I knew. Yeah. And how do you feel about that? You know, we're 46 years on now. How are your feelings on him and on that, that race? Well, I've been saying this for many years now, again, and it has to do with the drug situation. It all comes from the top on down. The IOC wants to do anything about it, they can't. But the history... Uh, if you look back, you had a president of East Germany uh, who was eventually given the Order of Olympic Merit by Juan Antonio Samranch, who was um, Franco's last surviving cabinet member. You had a fascist and a communist. And the fascist gave the communist the order of Olympic merit. What does that say about power? <laughs> right. <laughs> and and um, he also, Samran, put the head of the East German drug program on the U.S. Olympic um, International IOC Drug Committee. So they knew all the testing that was going on. And that allowed them to have parallel labs at meets. And so to think that the IOC now could say, well, we want to rectify that wrong, you, you have sort of uh, impeding that the fact that a former president of the IOC, head of the IOC, right, had had this relationship with the East German president. It sounds crazy, but, but I mean, I'm like, wow, it was a different era back then. And then, oh, wait, Lamine Diak, who was the head of world athletics, you know, what, how many years ago, John, five, seven, seven. Yeah. Covering up tests. It's crazy. Cause I remember people saying, I mean, we're always hearing it. This, everyone thinks everybody's dirty. And I'm like, 
but some guy went to this huge conspiracy once, and I'm like, that that's impossible. For that to be happening, they'd have to be covering up a test at the top. Well, <laughs> turns out it was happening, so maybe stuff hasn't changed that much. But I, I'm just trying to be realistic uh, about it, you know? Yeah. And given my experience, because, you know, I also had good experience during dealing with international track and field with regard to, you know, the trust fund and everything else that that's, you know, involved with that and, and the testing. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Not so much the testing, but, you know, Olin Castle, who was head of the um, um, uh, U.S. track and field for years and was kind of considered a villain, actually worked very he, he really was an ally for us when we were working back then. And I think that should be pointed out. Um, he is the guy that, that really took our case overseas so that we could open up the sport. And I think he's, he was cast as a villain and that really wasn't, that really wasn't the case. It, you know, it's very easy to do that. And it, with someone who is so good about not giving me information again, like Travis Tiger, you know, it's sort of like, you know, and, and, and so I just, again, I just, that just came to my mind for all you listeners that, you know, don't believe everything you see in, in the movies, even though a lot of it was true. There, there are some aspects of it that aren't. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask about times. Your personal best is 210.30 from Fukuoka in 1972. Now, for context on how good that is, last year in 2021, only one American ran faster than that time, 49 years later. So that would still put you among the best U.S. marathoners 49 years later. I, I guess I wanted to start by saying, did you ever run in a marathon in your career that either had a pacemaker or that had where time was sort of something you were going for rather than place? No, never had a pacemaker. And and again, the way I ran, I always searched and then ran negative split. I mean, positive splits. You know, I I, I would run 2.11 in Fukuoka when I won, but I went out in 103. <laughs> and, and, and there was no one else around. And, and so that's the way I ran. And so, um, but I don't even, so, but again, I don't predict. I don't predict how much faster I could have run if I had even pace or ran even pace or had a pacer because that's not the way it was. And, and I think for me, it served me well, because I think from what we've talked about today and your listeners, they can see, I, I was, I was good at varying pace. I wasn't an even pace runner. That's mm -hmm. not what I did because I knew, and, and this is, I think something I always tried to tell the younger runners and the coaches and stuff at that level, even in the marathon, most in the track races for sure everyone knows how fast everyone else in that field is on the continuum of finishing speed you know that if everybody's together with 165 to go you have a pretty good idea who's going to win and so all those people who aren't the fastest have to figure out another way are you catching my drift? And it, 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 it and so I, and I, again, to sort of come back and summarize again, I worked to my strengths and, and my strength was 
in essence, to, and I'd never really thought about it this way before, my strength was slowing down the overall speed of the race by using speed in the middle of the race. Yeah, I feel like that's something that you don't see as much. These, I mean, with the pacemakers, certainly not with the pacemakers, but right. with them in the race, because no one's going to surge ahead of the pacemakers until they drop out about 30 kilometers, you know? Right. And so you, right. that strategy, you might be able to put, pull it off in a Boston or New York, but a lot of the big city marathons, it's hard to implement these days. Right. Yeah, and I'm saying I, I'm willing to acknowledge that I was very fortunate to say, come along when I did. So is it foolish then to ask you what you, I know you said you don't really make predictions. Is it foolish to ask you what you think you could have run? You, we put you in Berlin marathon, perfect pacemakers. No. Super shoes. Because I, I couldn't have stood it. I wouldn't have done it. I couldn't yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not my nature. Um, and, you know, my form, um, part of what helped me was I was very light on my feet. And and so um, who knows how much I would have benefited from the platform shoes, right? The rebounding shoes. I don't know. You don't know. And, and um, no, but um, I don't mind. <laughs> it's, it, it, you know, I, and again, I have found, even though, and, and this is what I want to help in, you know, the summary of what we're talking about here. I'm still a huge fan and of running. And when you talk about, you know, being able to forget about terrorists and stuff, I watch races now and I don't think about the rebound. You know, I think about the tactics. And and so it it's still in me to know in a way more than I should of what's going on, but I can still appreciate what's going on because I realize that's that's the level of the sport. That's what's going on at this point in time. Now, the other thing I would like to say, and, and again, this is um, uh, just a personal opinion, there are other sports, one in particular that has done a much better job of this kind of situation with the shoes and that's swimming. Think of how they handled the suits, right? Yeah, they they basically put a unilateral ban back in right, 2009, right? 2010. Right. And it could be done. And and it's also, you know, with the the, the people, the blade runners. You know, you can you you can adjust those blades and, and limit them. And so who knows? Maybe they could do something along those lines. But again, I think I'm getting in over my head here, but um, you know, you can, if, if you want to give it a try, but swimming is the best example of, okay, no, we're just cleaning this up. Yeah. I think the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think they're going back, but my biggest complaint with the whole shoe thing was it was unfair. Like at the, at the what was it? 2016 Olympics. Some of the Nike runners had new shoes. Nobody else did. And then everyone's playing catch up. I mean, I guess if it's a level playing field now, like the other companies have had time to make their shoes, but to me, it's like doping. If some people can dope and others can't, it's not fair. Forget the health aspects. Well, I agree with that. I mean, if, if you're going to, 
it, it, at certain championship levels, you have just to guarantee that everybody, anyone who can't afford the shoes can have them. Yeah. And then also, yeah, like you said, like one of the greatest things with running is sort of how universal it is. And like anyone can get a pair of shoes and race. And so now like kids are going to have to drop. Yeah, now, now anyone with $300 can get a pair it, of shoes. Yeah. Now it's race. 300, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what sh shoes cost, you know, when you were running, but for me, they, they used to be under a hundred bucks. That was like considered That's right. That's not right. too bad. Yep. Well, kind of changing subjects here. You mentioned don't, uh, you know, believe everything i think you said it, you see in the movies and there's a guy here in the comment section he said is frank ready to see my tattoo of he and pre at hayward on my arm <laughs> oh my gosh he's got a grown man has a has, has a tattoo of you and pre fontaine on his arm but I, and i i i'm pretty sure which one it is it's where we're sitting uh on the infield and i have this odd looking turtleneck on and it's before we ran um it may have been his last race and um we were just talking and the story there is for people who don't know you know steve was organizing this meet in defiance of the u.s federation and invited all the finished track runners to be in it and i got back from an interval workout on the tuesday before the friday meet and i and i'm and i just back from the track and i get a call in my kitchen and it's steve and he'd just been out training with me in colorado because people, a lot of people don't know that he he realized that that I had come on to, I, I had discovered something in the altitude training. So he came out and trained with me for a month. And um, I even took him down to Towski Valley and we ran at 10,000 feet and, um, and everything. And then so he went home uh, and then organized this meet. And he... The Tuesday before the meet, like I said, my hardest interval workout on Tuesday, I get a call and he says, hey, Frank, come out, you can come out here and run the 5K against me uh, this Friday because Viren's dropped out. And, and the words out of my mouth were, oh, you need somebody to be <laughs> or at least be close. And, and he said, yeah. So, so I flew. I flew out there and we ran the, we ran that 5k. And I think that's, that may be the picture. We were just together on the infield before the race. And, and, um, you know, after he took me home, well, where I was staying, Kenny Moore's and drove down the hill and was gone. So that, that, um, yeah, that was, um, quite a day. Yeah, and most, I mean, there's a couple of generations that only know Pre really from the movies. Yeah. So so sort of, I don't know, what reflections do you have of him that you want people to know or that we don't know or that the movies get wrong? No, it's not that they get it wrong. I mean, you know, there's, I'm, I'm willing to, well, I mean, how can I criticize it when Kenny Moore wrote, you know, the screenplay? That's true. <laughs> and, and, and by the way, for your, Listeners don't know Kenny, who was a great friend of Freeze and mine, died May 4th. And um, and he was fourth in the Olympic marathon. Yeah, great runner and great writer. And wonderful writer. Wonderful writer. And, and um, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. It, it, um, and, but, but what I would like, you know, the people that know about Cree 
that that he was going to change. He he learned his lesson in the five thousand seventy two. I was one of the few people that could tell him that he'd been stupid. <laughs> one in predicting and telling people how fast he could run the last four, you know, last sixteen hundred meters. Um, me and Stewart had the best comment to that, which was when he sort of announced that's what he was going to do. And Ian Stewart said, well, hell, five of us can do that. <laughs> and, and, and then running wide the entire last lap, I could tell him that, but he, and, but, uh, we were going to train together next year. So I just thought people might like to know that again, because, um, but I was trying to say at the start, I mean, it really was, that's, that's the way we were then. And he and I would train and we'd do intervals together. And he liked to do intervals with me because I, I truly shared the lead. Every, you know, you're running 12, 400 meters. I led six, he led six. And he would train with me because I shared the lead. And so, you know, again, that was just the way we did it. And then the race would come. We try to beat each other's brains out and then we go back train together. Would he have won in 76? I don't know. I don't predict like that. He he would have been in there though. He was getting better. Mm-hmm. And and if you want, you want one more pre anecdote. Of course, I've done this publicly with people. When when he came to train with me that that you know in that month before he died, I took him down to Taos, to the ski valley, which is at um, the base at nine thousand feet, and he had never skied, and. Um, we went on the beginner's hill and I, we got him equipment and it was a very short kind of chairlift with this tiny beginner's hill about, you know, 150 yards long, 200 yards maybe. And so at the bottom, I'm showing him how to snow plow for the skiers, you know, and then how to apply pressure to start a snow plow turn, you know, going left and right and put pressure on the left ski and you go to the right and you put pressure on. And then, so we go up the chair and he gets off and he starts to snow plow and he doesn't even attempt to turn and he goes right down the hill and crashes into the hay bales at the bottom of the beginner's <laughs> And I thought, oh, I've killed him. <laughs> and 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 by, by the by the time we left we were up on the mountain we were skiing but we also at 11 o'clock we stopped skiing and we'd run four miles down from nine thousand feet to about eight thousand feet and four miles back up and then after skiing we would run up to ten thousand feet and do another six or seven miles at 10,000 feet, and that was our ski vacation. One time, starting down the mountain, it started, it was spring, it was early April, and it started, for people familiar with snow, it started the corn snow. Corn snow looks just like kicks, and it's because, you know, it's right on the melting point, 32 degrees snow, and the wind was coming up the valley as we were heading down this, like, 70 percent grade this road and the corn snow was blowing horizontally and hitting us you know right in the chest and we had to actually struggle to run down this hill right 
And what people, <laughs> Steve was a pisser and moaner. He loved to piss and moan when he ran. And he was, you know, we all knew that. And I knew that. So we start down, <laughs> running down the hill in this court snow blowing, freeze, freezing, hitting us and melting as it hits us. And I turned to him as it just started to, just the ramp was getting out of control. And I said, Steve, do you know, no one in the world is probably training harder than we are right now. And for the first time ever, he shut up. And we ran the rest of the workout. He never said a word. And we ran. ran. So that's my prefontaine story. And back then, a lot of people didn't do altitude training, right? Did you just sort of discover that on the own? Or was the science getting out there about it? Or how did that come about? My family moved to Taos, New Mexico in 1967 when I was a junior in college. And Taos is at 7,000 feet. And I realized when I went back for my junior year that um, it, it was better. I, I could tell there was an effect. And then it, it really took hold when I went out the next summer and trained at altitude and then went back and had that. That's when things began to take off for me um, in, in college. You know, in, in the sequence is I, I uh, you know, ran very well in the Ivy League and, and then finished 19th in, in the National Cross Country, which was all American. And then in the indoor track meet at Joe Lewis, I was second in the two mile. And then I won the six mile outdoors and the three miles outdoors that senior year. So you can see it was a big leap. And, but it was, it was happening. And I think it was because of the base training that, that, that I found I could do, I could do at altitude. Yeah. So it, it, in a way I didn't discover it. It discovered me. <laughs> it sounds like the altitude really paid off for you i mean with my own oh, running, yeah. oh yeah same thing i moved to flagstaff arizona for four months and i became like i ended up staying four years because i became so much a better runner and yeah well also frank this is a personal thing one of my lifelong goals i want to see yale win the heps cross country <laughs> they have they haven't won since the war and that's world war ii for anyone out there do you, do you have any advice like, or maybe the whole team should move to out, al- move to altitude for the summer and come back? Like, Oh no, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it, uh, again, you just, you hope for the cycles. Um, we've been hoping for a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and just on the, on the yell note, I started running a, a relay called hood to coast about 12 years ago. And a bunch of old Yale guys from my cross country team were, like five of us were on that first 12-man relay in our 60s uh, from Mount Hood to Seaside, Oregon, 200 miles. And so, yes, we, we need that spirit at Yale again. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. It, it would be, no, I don't say we need it. It would be nice to have it, you know, where um, one of the guys, um, and, and here's a factoid, is, is um, his name is Dan Larson. When he was a freshman at Yale, he decided to run the Boston Marathon, and he is one of, I think, three people who have run more than 50 Boston Marathons, and he's on our relay, and he was on that relay this year at 70, or 69. So, you know, Yale can produce the runners. It's just, 
sometimes there's a long time in between. <laughs> yeah, got, I, yeah, for sure. I got one question related to your running now, one more Yale question. First, how much do you run these days? I run, I jog, walk um, four times a week. And then I'll walk another two times. And then I will cycle indoors and sometimes outdoors. And then I do uh, a lot of weight training, especially core training. And I also do water therapy for balance. So in a way, I'm spending <laughs> just as much or maybe more time training, if you want to call it that, than I did when I was running 20 miles a day. You're doing this for your health or just because you like being active? Or Well, I, I taught, yeah, no, but I also think, and I sent you the same, I think certain people have what I call an exercise quota and they need to do a certain amount of activity in a day. And, and, and it, because it feels good, it's not an obligation. It's part of your routine. And when we were at Yale, we did it for stress relief. I'm, I'm, I know that's a big part of it and, um, still do it. You know, it, and it allows you, you can either focus on what you're doing or think about anything you want to and drift off. And it's, it's, it's a time when you're working out that you can sort of consolidate a lot of things like thoughts, or you can just drift off to wherever you want to be. And I think um, just certain people need to do that on a daily basis. And I'm one of them. Yeah, I think, I mean, exercise, running, it makes us better people. So yeah, for sure. And uh, my Yale question, we, we touched on this before we got in the air. I'd always heard this story. And it just shows that Frank Shorter, the great Olympic champion, is human. So I don't know what, I think he, it was a Yale-Harvard meet. Yale had never beaten Harvard in a long time. Outdoor, it's, outdoor it, dual meet. Outdoor dual meet, two miles. Like if you'd get a certain place, I think Yale could win the meet and you drop out with 800 meters to go. Tell us the story for the record. Okay, for the record. And I, again, I said I'd like to research to see if I ran the mile in that race too, because very often I would double. Um, it was the spring of my junior year. I was a pre-med psychology major, and the course of that year for most pre-meds is organic chemistry, which is one of the hardest courses at Yale. It was at the time. And the lab was a very, very hard lab. You had many unknowns. I won't, won't go into numbers. And I was trying to finish because the, the track meet was towards the end of the year before finals, but it was towards the end. And I was trying to finish up uh, all my lab work uh, by identifying these unknown elements. And um, I had my roommate, Ken Davis, later on. And for, again, the Yale people, um, I always maintained I was the underachiever in the room because right now Ken Davis is head of all Mount Sinai medicine in the United States. <laughs> and, and so um, he was a sprinter and he hadn't, and he was my roommate and he hadn't seen me for days. Well, I was out at the labs trying to find the unknown. And, and so I, literally show up at the meet and Ken doesn't even know whether or not I'm going to be there. 
And Gegengak, the coach, didn't wasn't didn't know if I was going to be there. So I show up, and in half a mile going to two mile, and I'll I was on pace to run like nine ten or nine eleven for the two miles, and I I probably wouldn't have won, but I was probably going to place, and I just dropped out. I went to the infield. I laid down on my back. Ken Davis comes running up to me with Gegengak, and they both there together. And the and Ken reminded me years later. I forgot about this. Years later, he said the first words out of my mouth were, "It's camphor." It was my last unknown. It was delirious, <laughs> and and um, and that's one of the um, two times I think. I've ever dropped out of the race and the other time was injury. And um, so it happened to be in the middle of the Harvard deal. Cracking. And Yale lost the meet and Harvard won the meet. Yeah. The longtime coach Mark Young would, would tell me that because we, we won one year and he was trying to pump me up. He's like, Frank Shorter didn't do that. And I'm like, well, he did win the Olympic marathon. So I yeah, we, well, tra- we, we trade spots. Yeah, I know. I know. Anyway, but, uh, and thank you for doing this. There's a question here in the chat. How fast could you run a mile right now? Oh, geez. I don't know. And, and I don't want to know. No, I'm serious. I, I don't want to know. I'm going to be 75 years old in a month. And, um, uh, no, as long as I can keep going. And I've been this way for over 20 years. When the first um, GPS watches came out, I was at a trade show and someone at one of the booths said, here, here, we want to have, have, want to have one of these. And I turned down the watch and I said to him, I'm not sure I want to know. <laughs> because so much of my running, and I think what helped me, was that when I went easy, I went easy. And that's what Jack Batchelor reaffirmed. And, and actually, he probably taught me that down in Florida. And I just run easily now. I, I, I just, I, if, if I would time myself for a mile if I were doing interval training now, which I'm not, and I wanted to run a race, which I'm, I don't want to. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just being honest. And, Sure, I'm willing to admit that you know it's kind of hard to realize you're slowing down. Um, <laughs> I don't have to hit myself over the head with it every day, and and so um, that's that's the answer I got. Yeah, I'm not even fifty, and I feel the same way. I, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> A couple quick ones here before we let you go, Frank. I wanted to sure. know fr- from the readers. Uh, we've got a question from Runners Runner. Who would you consider the tough, the toughest non-American athlete you ever raced against? Brendan, Brendan Foster, um, ten thousand meter runner, um, just you know, just a gutsy Northern Britain blue collar runner, and mm-hmm. great, great competitor. Uh, and we, we had really good races. Um, and, um, 
<laughs> One year, I think it was 1975, we raced in Crystal Palace, London, and we actually ran, I think, um, the fastest time of the year, and it may have been when I set my PR. Um, and I took out that race and ran, I think, under uh, like 13.55 for the first 5K, which was pretty fast for those days. And I had, uh, and he took over with about three quarters of a mile to go and got about a 30 mile, uh, 30 yard lead on me, uh, coming into the final straightaway, no, 20 yards. And down the straightaway, I was happy, but I realized about 50 yards from the finish line, I wasn't going to catch him. And this is something I always tell people too about reframing. I started to reframe at that point saying, I'm going to, how I was going to changed my training so next year I was going to catch it or next time I was going to catch it and so I caught him two yards beyond the finish <laughs> and we're walking along and we're friends and, and I'm going jeez Brendan I almost caught you and Brendan in his great understated way looked at me and said Frank I beat you <laughs> <laughs> And, and and we were ranked one two in the world that year, on that race. <laughs> oh wow, he's tough man. Yeah, oh, it's a great great commentator for a long time as well for the BBC. Um, yeah. Okay, another question here from uh, Run Bum. You were self coached since your college days and used the same system throughout your career. Do you think this system took you to your physical potential or would you change anything if you could redo it? And he also wants to know, could you give us a sample week of training for you during your prime? Oh, okay. Um, no, I, I, I wouldn't change it because I, I do think, you know, I just happened to make some good choices and, and I kind of knew what my abilities were. One, light on my feet. Two, I could recover. Um, and not only during workouts, but between workouts. And, and, and I realized the speed training worked for me. Um, and a typical week when I was running well uh, would have been 20 miles on Sunday. Sometimes I ran um, hard, sometimes easy. We had a group that met at my house every morning in Boulder, and we would run 20 miles. And we would run the first 10 e easily, probably over six minute pace, six, six thirty, who knows? And then we would run, everyone could take off on the second two mile loop. It was two mile two, two ten mile loops. And and it was how fast you could finish that second loop. And um I came even at altitude for that second ten miles, I could I could um um be a little bit over fifty minutes for the second ten, fifty one, two, three. Then Monday, Monday, and this is where the recovery came in. And that's why this is a good question. Monday, I ran my most difficult interval workout of the week, the day after the 20 mile run. And I would run six or seven miles in the morning. In the afternoon, at altitude, it would be intervals. 
that would total three miles worth of hard running. And then the rest in between was about half the, uh, double the distance I would jog at sea level, but I would try to run my sea level time at altitude, which was 65 seconds. So I never ran 1,200 meters at altitude slower than 315, ever. And I would recover in between. Then I would take um, an easy day the next day and run. At altitude, I would run, uh, I averaged about three to four miles less than at sea level. At sea level, I could do about 20 miles a day. At altitude, I found 17. It just turned out to be the, the number, okay? And I think that had something to do with recovery. And on the easy runs, I never timed um, my easy runs. Jack taught me that. Uh, because the whole point was to recover. And my theory was that by jogging, the, the, the easy days are to recover through venous pressure muscle contraction. It's not really a training run. It's a recovery run. And if you're jogging, it makes sense. It made sense to me that, you know, you're contracting muscles um, uh, faster and better and it'll speed up your circulation. I don't know if that's, I don't even know if they've proven that now, but that's what I believed. Then on a Thursday, I would do something like 12 times 400 meters with a very, very short recovery in the afternoon. Um, and then, uh, but on the Thursday, if I were racing, on a, so I might've taken two easy days sometimes. And then if I weren't racing on a Saturday, on Saturday, I would run um, in and out 200, 200s and try to average under 28 seconds. Uh, for the 200s, just for speed. I'd run 20 of them. And so that was about it. And then if I raced, I, I, I would race. And then every once in a while on the, say, the Thursday uh, run before, or let's see, uh, on the Wednesday run where I was going easily, I would start my second workout of the day, and, and I always started it out in the same route and it, to warm up. And because if I were feeling really good on that day, I would um, do, it turns out, what was now, it, what's now called the tempo run, which is, you know, lactate threshold right on. I didn't know that's what it was. But I would warm up for about 10 minutes if I felt really good. And then I had a certain course I would always run when I felt like that. And it ended up running uh, around the University of Colorado uh, bike path, which circles the campus. And I would always end up on that bike path and see how far along on the bike path I could go in 40 minutes total of hard running and finish. And that's how I gauged my improvement. Because as I got better and better, I finished for farther and farther along the path. And that, that was essentially it. And the other thing about it is I train that way all year round. I ran on the indoor track uh, at, at Colorado and did the same kind of intervals. So I ran as hard indoors as outdoors. And Again, I, I got to the point where I never ran 
400 meters at a pace slower than 65 seconds. So that, and I did it year round. That's what I did. Thanks for sharing that, Frank, to hear the, the training uh, week. I think that was pretty, that was pretty cool for me. Certainly one of the more interesting parts of the, the interview. Weldon, do we have anything else for him? It's been about, I think, 90 minutes. So I don't want to keep, I, I could talk to you for like another two hours and hear your stories from, you know, 50 years ago, Frank, but I don't want to be too, uh, you know, overbearing. We're kindred spirits here, like I said. So we, we, you know, and, and I like talking to other runners in a way that's not the usual way that runners talk to each other, which is about uh, training and injuries and most recent performances. So, yeah. and more, more theoretical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, it's been 50 years. Like what's maybe two questions. When you look, this is the question from Adam uh, Stank on the chat. When you look back at the 1972 Olympics, what do you remember the most? It, I, it was, well, I can only free associate here and say, what do I think about the most? And, and it really was the massacre and that what went on after it. You see what I mean? That, that moment when it happened. Um, um, I, and when you ask me how often I think about, um, you know, the race. I think about the massacre more than I think about the race and, and, and that whole, um, situation, you know, and the whole just horror, horror of it. And one thing I'd like to say that I don't think many people of, of which many people maybe are not aware, the Boston bombing, I was across the street at, in front of the Lord and Taylor store when bomb one went off at the finish line, I was on my way to a, a, an NBC uh, production meeting in the afternoon. And I started to go into the um, Lord and Taylor store, which was the store that had the camera on top that had the video of bomber number two. And bomb two went off right behind me across the street as I was entering the vestibule, um, Lord and Taylor. And so I, think I'm probably one of the few people who is who heard the shots in Munich and the bombs in Boston. So and uh, so it, it it's it's always a reminder to me of um, you know how there can be so much good and so much bad in the same place. So anyway. Yeah there's a lot a lot bigger things out there than running and as I think people born after 72, we don't appreciate that, you know, that's the same Olympics because, well, we hear about the the massacre and we hear about, oh, Frank Shorter won the Olympic gold medal and we don't realize these were five days apart. I mean, it's just sort of, but I think some of that's life, right? There's there's evil, there's good, there's love, there's, yeah, it could be at the exact same place at the exact same time, pretty much. Yeah. And, and you're right. That's a very good way to put it. I'll cite, I'll cite you if I ever say that. <laughs> also, the other thing. So 50 years, you have all this perspective. What's the number one piece of running advice or life advice you'd give people out there? 
oh, I don't know about life advice. I wouldn't be any good at that. Um, um, yeah, the running advice is, and I've always said this, consistency is the key. The more consistent you can be in your training, the less you have to get it exactly right. And not only does it give you more leeway, it allows you to refine your training. So it, 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 it helps you in two ways. You, you, you can have, you, you, you don't need to be as precise and good, and yet it, it'll help you get better at it. <laughs> so I hope that makes sense. Death. Absolutely. I mean, look at, you know, I know a lot of the breakthroughs we see from athletes is just, hey, I was able to get three years of healthy training uninterrupted. And they just naturally, if you're doing that in your 20s, you're going to improve. And if you're talented enough, you're going to get that breakthrough, right? Right. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, anything else for Frank? Uh, I mean, this was a, this was a pleasure really uh, to, to hear you share your wisdom to reminisce about Munich 50 years on. It was, it was, uh, I, I know that our listeners in the chat appreciate it. I know that everyone who listens to this in the podcast later is going to be appreciative. Um, we just wanted to say, you know, thank you for, for joining us tonight, Frank. Good. Thank you. Anytime. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for inspiring us all. Thanks. And, and have a celebratory drink or something on Saturday for sure. <laughs> okay. And stay safe, everyone. Stay safe and be happy. Thanks. You too, Frank. Bye-bye. Thank you.